finally were able to edit the uh, latest Sunday Cram School. I think we did it on Saturday, actually. We got a bunch of investors who want to learn about syndication topics, did a bunch of FAQs in a presentation form, and we edited it up for you guys to listen in today's podcast. Now, there are a lot of things that I had to actually edit out due to SEC reasons. If you want the full cut of it, you guys can go to simplepassacastrol.com slash club, join the database there, and we will get you a copy. Or you can send an email to team at simplepassacastrol.com with the subject line secret hooey message. Either way, that works. We'll get this unedited version out to you guys. But just some takeaways that I've been seeing this week, actually this month. A lot of this came from the Hui retreat that we had recently in Hawaii. Really excited about doing it next year. Not only talking about investing money, where do you get your money from? Where do you put it? How do you protect it? Taxes, et cetera. But more about the relationships because as we've seen, if you're doing the one, two, three, simple passive cash flow plan, investing in good assets where you're cash flowing just in case of recession with good, honest people. Secondly, you're, you're investing tax why smartly, you're using the passive losses effectively to possibly pay less taxes on the ordinary income side. And you're doing a little bit infinite banking. For most of you folks out there who make six figures, it'll be out of the rat race in four to seven years for the most part. And some of these takeaways that I wanted to summarize for some of you folks is, you know, we talk a lot about end game, getting the four or five million dollars net worth, because that's a threshold where you can get to and get back into the marketable securities, the Wall Street crap. And just make that four or 5% return or put it into infinite banking, which is even more secure in life insurance and make that return tax free there. Infinite banking, if you haven't heard about it, go to simplepassacastro.com slash banking, get the free e-course there to learn more about it. The idea is you have to get penetration and grow your equity into more semi-aggressive deal to get yourself to this sort of higher level, three, four, five million dollars net worth. And at that point, you can go into cruise control. Now, one of the ideas that we talk a lot about in our family office group and in-person meeting is this concept of what do you invest in when you get to EdGame? Not necessarily for equity growth or better returns, but more for stability. And some people, they titrate to that point slowly, right? Where in the beginning, they're going to be in rental property syndications to get up to a point, maybe two to three million, but maybe take, I don't know, a quarter of their portfolio and slowly put it into these more end game type of investments. Just to name a few, just to get the wheels turning in case you're not aware of some of these types of things. Still in the alternative investing space, they might be like life settlement investing, where you're going to be buying out the life insurance product of somebody who is unfortunately going to be passing away or in a terminal illness. It seems very morbid, but it is one of those things that is guaranteed to happen. It's just a matter of when. Another investment that a lot of people talk about are triple net deals or commercial leases. And this is where they say, just go buy a Walgreens once you have a boatload of money. Something I want to point out and a discussion topic that came up that I want to share is maybe triple net deals aren't the best thing to be doing at this point in time, this market cycle. Right now, rent increases are skyrocketing. The economy is doing pretty good. If you're not going forward, you're going backwards. And we've heard this in many types of personal development. And also, I, I'm going to extend it out to real estate. Now, hear me out here. Now, triple net deals, like investing in a Walgreen, any type, type of corporate-based, big corporate tenant is very, and especially when they take care of all the, the expenses, which is the term triple net comes from you, the landlord, the investor, you pass all those expenses off to the tenant. 
you don't make as much money, but it's still pretty decent return for very low risk. But now what you're starting to happen in this market cycle is a lot of these very sophisticated corporate tenants, they know their value and they know that inflation is going up. And for a lot of them, they're making the good business decision to just dump their leases, tell the landlord to go screw off, which may not seem like the right thing to do, but in terms of their leases, it's totally within their contractual basis for them to do this. Combine this with the fact that you're seeing a lot of these Walgreens and these pharmacy stores that were traditionally one of the people who would take up these single lot kind of type of triple net ideal type of investments for high net worth families to go after. Partly because Amazon's coming to town with the pharmacy stuff and just less need for brick and mortar. Now, I'm not saying it's going away completely. Maybe now not be the time for this. And this is where it's a concept of there's a time to get aggressive and there's a time to huddle. I'm trying to emulate and some, I don't see it that often, but large families, family offices, the guys that are 50, $100 million net worth. Now, these guys, sometimes you can make the argument that they have enough money where they can just live off the remains and their 20 something plus offspring can live off of it and they're fine. But the ones that are being done correctly, they are still semi-aggressive in the market. And what are they doing now? Are they getting more aggressive buying rental properties while the rents are going up and interest rates are still pretty low and continuing down that track? Or are they going into triple net deals, which is the duck and cover, where there are these, from a risk standpoint, there are these kind of headwinds that are are the commercial leases are headed into. Now, I don't know, but I just wanted to pose it out there as a question to ask. Now, Maybe you can take the standpoint that I'm just going to be very stoic. Whether good times or bad times, I'm going to be doing the same thing regardless. Fine. I don't know. And there's different investment philosophies out there, but I'm starting to catch on to the fact that you know, maybe you might be very stoic and or maybe a family officer might, might be very stoic in their philosophy, but still they recognize when the timing is good, there's a time to get in. And then when there's a time when things are overheated, you go to a hedge strategy or you protect your tail. Just thought I put that out there. Now, that said, there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts and just don't have very much money and they have very little investment knowledge and are very unsophisticated, even though they listen to a gazillion podcasts. Now, if you're out there and your net worth is less than a million dollars, I have to say that you can't play this strategy where you can just duck and cover. You need to get out there and you need to grow your money. Let's just say that because I talked to a lot of people who now they're like, yeah, the world's going to end. The, everything's going up. The interest rates are going to skyrocket, which by the way, that's why you invest in real estate when you are basically hedging that the interest rates will be going up because you're hedged against it and protected because you have the rents in play. If the rents go up, the rents is essentially a way to hedge that interest rates go up because when interest rates go up, that's indicative of a good economy. And that just pretty much gets passed on, unfortunately, to the tenants. So- there's a lot of people that kind of say the economy is just too hot and they just use that as an excuse not to get started. And one way to figure out who's real, who's not, say, what's your net worth? If you're less than a million dollars, I'm just going to discount your your type of opinion, to be honest. But that's just me. You guys might be different. But I just want to pull the different ideas of some things I've been listening to. But with that, here is the replay of the censored version of the syndication crap school we did. We'll try and do another one of these in the future, but what I would really suggest for every one of you interested in being a passive investor 
is get educated. Do our syndication e-course. It's a few hundred bucks, but if you definitely join up at some point, we do refund that for it. We have a refund policy. So it's kind of a no risk type of thing. The worst thing you can do is learn something. And this is where you can learn all the little tricks that syndicators do, what to invest in, and more importantly, what to stay away from. You can't just go off for performer. Performers mean nothing. If the numbers that were used to assume that performer are all baked and overly exaggerated. And that's what the syndication course does. To get more information, go to simplepassacastle.com slash club. And we will be sending out the uncensored version or the one with all the extra goodies basically here for the end of next month. Be sure to go to simplepassacastle.com slash club. Sign up there and enjoy the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Welcome, everybody. So for the next couple of hours, we'll just be going through frequently asked questions. I've got some already here planned for you guys. But I want to keep this interactive. So if you guys have any questions pertinent to the, what I'm talking about on the current slide, Please put it into the question and answer box. I'll be monitoring there also. The first question that start off with some softballs here since I'm still getting warmed up. Got my the cafe here. First question, what is syndication or private placements exist? Now, a general question. I just wanted to paint the picture, paint the different levels of the business plan in terms of risk reward here. So on the left-hand side, you have distressed property all the way to yield properties or yield deals. So distress is, I would consider this less than 85, 80% occupied. So these are hairy deals, right? Might be half occupied, might be 10, 20% occupied. Hairy deals, again, more risk, more reward with these types of deals, you would think. Probably no cash flow. We've done a couple of these. You guys haven't seen them come out because they only go out to the phone with VIP members. These are the ones that will cash flow for a couple of year, years, but they have huge upside. And some of you guys are in like Chase Creek, County Line, those would be considered new development. Nothing's there. It's being built from the ground up. These are going to be properties that you would think are a little bit more risky. There's no cash flow paying out in the first year. Certainly, you know, probably no cash flow for the first two, maybe three years, but a lot of upside with that. I think what you guys are very used to are the like the stabilized value add deals. And value add can eat, it is a buzzword thrown around pretty loosely, in my opinion. And it is can mean many different things. It can be doing value add of a thousand dollars, so very light rehab, or it could be four to fifteen thousand dollars be light to medium value add. It could be very heavy add value add too, which I would probably call the distress side that's stabilized meaning it's stabilized from the get-go so it's 85 90 percent plus occupied and that there's some like component are you a non-accredited investor looking for opportunities to invest passively how about a new investor looking to get a bit of a track record and confidence from your skeptic spouse and could you use the reinforcement of monthly checks paid like clockwork the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP, is looking to bring new investors with them. I've been investing with them since 2016, and originally, I used it as a means to pay for my regular expenses. I started with $60,000 as my initial investment, 
and that paid for my car payment completely for me. AHB collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes by restructuring or selling the debts, unlike their competitors that just kick their homeowners out on the streets. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when owner George Newberry saw the impact our simple passive cash flow monthly crew was making, approached me to become a spokesperson of the company. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahptitle.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And if you haven't done yet, join our private investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. On the right side here, and we don't really do too many of these because I feel like all the yield properties are just kind of like cash flow properties. So think of it like a turnkey rental property is a book property. And you guys who know, know, those of you guys who have turnkey rentals, you guys know that the trouble with turnkey rentals is there's no value add there. There's no margin. So there's a hiccup in the company. Sure, you still cash flow and you're kind of underwater the investment a little bit with the market value going down. But so I would probably consider a yield property anywhere from a couple thousand dollars of rehab per unit. So done a few of these, just go in and change the backsplash in the kitchen. That's pretty much it. I would probably call this more like, say the rents are under by 50 bucks across the board. If you're just going in, you're just changing out the management, best practices, getting to those higher rents. I would probably still call that more the yield side. other people may call it value add, but I would probably call it more yield type of deal. But those are the different types of deals. Again, you can syndicate anything. You can syndicate real estate. You can syndicate breweries. You can syndicate whatever. Syndication is just a form of pulling money together to get into a larger asset. And the whole idea with syndication and why would you want to jump in the deals with other people is that you're trying to get above the bond and call investor level. We're buying single family homes, duplex, triplex squads, but also anything under 20 to 40 units is accessible by affluent mom and pop investors. If mom and pop investors or the bigger pockets kind of crowd, right? They're the ones who push up the prices you want to be getting away from. So we usually try and stay above 100, 150 units because we want to have the property manager in the property at all times. We, we also want to have enough uh, units so that we can have one or two handyman out there at all times of paid on salary to knock out little work orders and not pay third-party plumbers and HVAC. Any follows up with that? Again, type into the question and answer box. If not, drink a little coffee here and we'll move on to the next question. Looks like we got a, quite a crowd this morning. Yes, this will be recorded. When we do the live webinars, most people tend to just watch it on replay. They're used to hearing me talk at 2x speed anyway. Question, what type of reporting do investors receive? Everybody is a little bit different, right? From one syndicator to a different syndicator. But with me, we try and do monthly reports. And those monthly reports will include a snapshot of the profit and loss statement. What's nice is after you get a bunch of months in a row, you start to develop that team. You can see the you know, how the income trends. And then you have all your expense light item. And then you have the income minus expense, which is net operating income. Then you have your debt service. Then you have your profit. You can see how that trails January, February, March, April, May, June, July, September, August throughout the year. In addition, there is a little bit of a narrative, but a lot of times there's not much. We struggle to write the narratives from time to time. That's why we, we are into these types of investments. There's really not 
much that goes on. We don't really divulge the small day-to-day stuff. We were trying to get Jane in on Saturday. The rehab wasn't completed, so we got her there on Wednesday. We'll never really talk about that type of stuff. But if there's some kind of big issue that's happening, yes, we will definitely let investors know on that type of stuff. Most investors, what I've found is don't even read the reports. I put them also on a living log page for people to catch up every few months when they have time and they're just curious what's been happening with the deal. But that's pretty much it. Quarterly, there's a little bit more beefier reports as we complete the third-party accountants do that more quarterly reports for us. But that is what we do for reporting. Another interesting thing is it comes out like 25 days later, close the month, say on September 30th, September 31st. And it usually takes 10 to 15 days for all the checks to start to roll in. And at that point, you you have 200 units. You're always going to have people paying late. But then we also have the vendor invoices coming in too late that we want to roll up with the month it came in. That's why it's taking so long, 15 days, and then it gives us five days, maybe plus a few, to finally get it out to investors. There is a bit of a lag there, but it kind of is what it is. Sherman, that's a question here. Question, why invest in syndications instead of REITs? Many reasons. Because, well, REITs are like retail products. And what are retail products? Retail products are like all the stuff that you're finding in your 401k, all these garbage investments in my opinion and i call it that because it's like going to shop at nordstrom or newman marcus for the same t-shirt or college shirt and you're paying this higher price for all like the marketing and overhead of the larger institution where you can just buy it on amazon or go to china and buy it for two bucks reits are probably the same thing that syndications are in minus a few ways but the main thing is like i said that they're marketable securities they have both the middlemen and your returns are just going to be way less because institutions and the middlemen are taking all the returns away. This is why we do what we do because there's a lot of hardworking people out there who blindly put their money into the 401ks and REITs and stuff like that. And the institutions are just taking your money. The, the analogy I use a lot of times is it's, it's not like my high school cafeteria. You're stuck there. You're stuck with all these crappy offers. Marriott did our food service at my school and stuck there and this food sucked and it was really expensive. I went to private school where it it wasn't subsidized. And what do you do when you get your off-campus pass? Get the heck out of there. Go and eat. Maybe not the best analogy, but you go and eat Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, all the good tasty stuff that's really cheap on the outside. And that's synonymous with you guys, alternative investors, busting out of the cafeteria and getting to the good stuff where you don't have all these markups. One interesting thing about REITs are supposed to pay out 90% of their, their earnings to investors, which sounds really good. Like it's probably put in by some consumer advocacy group, but that may not be best for the asset. So I know a lot of times we won't pay out 90% of the products. We won't keep it for ourselves. We'll keep it in the bank account for cash reserves. And why do we do that? It's not like we don't like you guys, but our number one priority is the, the asset, right? Holding onto the asset. We know there might be bumpy roads ahead. So we want to keep a certain amount of healthy cash reserves in there at all times. We may want to put more and more rehab into there. A lot of times, like the bank account being built up to $80,000, $100,000 plus, we could certainly pay out $60,000 of that 
to investors on that quarter, but we may elect to, oh, let's go and do that. But we didn't plan to do the playground for some reason, right? Let's go ahead and do it and expand, just using that as an example. Why? Because we're probably going to be able to yield another 20 bucks of rents in every single unit because of that. And that is a reason at the end of the day, this is why you're in a syndication where the GPLP is aligned. At the end of the day, you guys only make money when we make money or maybe we make money when you guys make money. So we're aligned in that fashion. And it's not like we don't want to pay you guys. What we want to do is want to sell that asset more at the end of the day. That's going to be the better business decision pay 90% of the profits back to investors. But big thing, number one, REITs or retail products. And this is, we mentioned before how we stay above mob and pop investors, getting better deals than they do, better economies of scale. But we're also staying below the large institutional investors. These guys are buying dozens of properties at a time and a thousand. Sometimes they come down and they'll compete with us on a 500, 600, 400 unit property. Not often. They're more looking for clubs because the buyer for that is some big faceless institution investing dumb retirement money, long-term dumb retirement money where they have a very low threshold for returns because they're investors. They're used to the seven, eight, 9% this type of stuff in especially in like the REITs. REITs returns aren't that high. That's who we're competing with. So they could be a lot more aggressive on the pricing. They can offer say 35 million where only we could go up to 31, 32, for example. That's how the environment and why we stay in this middle sweet spot in terms of syndication. So we can get above the bottom and palm investors but stay below the big guys. And what we're doing is when we're buying these properties, we're, we're fixing it up, taking it the rest of the way, we typically start off with stabilized assets already, but we want to go through and just bump those rents up even more. And really, that's what the lazy, large institutions want to buy, in, to put into their REITs, to put into their big uh, portfolios for retirement retail buyers. So the idea is a lot of times our exit strategy, which we don't plan for in the numbers. We plan to sell to just another investor like ourselves. But what we don't account for is possibly selling to a large stupid REIT that will pay a much lower cap rate because they're not that picky in terms of returns, like I said. This is why we strive to get a certain amount of economies of scale so we could sell back to one of these REITs a nice little package of a couple, six plus properties or get above a thousand units. We like to do that in addition so that we can build up economies of scale with property management, and then we can share resources amongst different properties too is the second reason. Thanks for the question, sure. Don't be shy, folks. Put your questions in. Much rather answer the live questions than the stuff I've already put up here. Question, are returns guaranteed a preferred return? First question here, returns are not guaranteed. In everything that you do, there is risk. And syndication is no difference there. But the reason why you invest real estate at the end of the day is like a hard asset. The reason why you invest in stabilized stuff is even in bad times, it performs really well. This is why with our strategy, we try and go into properties at cash flow from the get-go. So just in case the economy crashes, even in the beginning when you're most vulnerable, you know, you're still head above water, got enough cash reserve, working capital, you've got some flexibility in the business plan. That's why we raise all the money for all the capex in the beginning. The analogy to think about it is like we have enough food and supplies, water, 
we stuff that away, stuff it in the bank account or, or the basement, if you will. If something happens in the economy and a little bit of a hurricane, a tornado comes around, figuratively speaking, then we just sit back and we hang out and we just cash flow. We could probably still get done the rehabs. Maybe we hold out because of the uncertainty, but maybe we even push forward even harder because other people in the economy are out of work and we can get the rehabs done. That's the hard thing about getting work done now, and especially larger construction, just because in a good economy, which is always good because your rents are always going up, that the workforce is very tight. Nobody wants to do any work. And I'm sure you guys read all the anti-work threads out there. It's a little bit humorous and it drives you guys crazy. But there's a lot of people out there that just don't really want to work or there's so much work to be done out there that people are a little bit more expensive to get things done, especially like rehabs. But that's maybe that, that flip-flops whenever there's a recession. But there's multiple exit strategies with all these properties. We don't have to rehab the entire property up. We can always take it up to a certain amount and sell the property. That's always a possible exit strategy. A preferred rate of return is sometimes called a pref and put into certain deals. In my opinion, it's what you do when you're a syndicator and you need to spice it up and put in um, and entice investors to get in. I see it done on like more like riskier deals because at least the unsophisticated investor in their head, what their thing is, my preface accumulating, but what the, what the unsophisticated investor doesn't know is if the, the deal doesn't make any money, they're not getting anything anyway. I also see the dark side of prefs happen. So say there's like a 10, 15% pref accumulating. Every year it accumulates. Say three years go by and there's some kind of delay in the project. The sponsor could be behind 30, 45% that they owe to investors first without first getting paid. And this is where it's important to know the, the ethics of your sponsor because the sponsor might say, screw these guys. I'm never going to get paid. Let's just sell this property and be out because I'm not going to get paid, even though it may not be the best thing for passive investors. And I think unsophisticated passive investors, they always look for a pref, for me the pref. And I always tell people, don't worry about the pref, worry about the deal. Is this damn thing going to make money for you? Is property underwritten or it's going to be do well in tough times? If it's not that, then don't invest at that point. Whether you have a pref or not, doesn't really matter. The, the deal doesn't make money. You're not going to get anything. Anything else on this guarantee, nothing is guaranteed. Everything, there is risk. And preferred returns question. All right, moving on. Can you pull out your investment? Everything in the documents tell you you can't do it because it was a cumbersome process. And it's a real pain. And to me, if you're doing that, you probably should invest anyway. Right. Like most investors in these deals are credit investors. And really, you need to grab 50 grand from this thing. You can't find 50 grand elsewhere. If that's the case, you probably shouldn't invest. Like things happen, right? Medical emergencies, that's what insurance is for. You lose your job, you should have your emergency savings account. That's why you do infinite banking to have that dry powder waiting around. The only thing I could see is actually, this is happening. Family member has a medical emergency, they don't have insurance. That's legitimate. Very unfortunate. Or a person goes through divorce, now they have to carve up all these assets. But that's why we make people sign the whole spousal consent thing. Whether it has legal binding or not, I don't know. But at least it has some signature there from the spouse notating that, yes, they saw the paperwork for this. and They acknowledged that it was liquid investment. And in case John and Jill hate each other when they get divorced, but when they signed the paperwork, they had a great marriage. But at this point, Maybe she, this is Jill's money and she tells John to go away and leave her money in this investment alone because he signed this big documents. That's what pretty much the way I see what that paperwork serves. I've seen it happen where signing that can help the disgruntled spouse 
the, the investment of all, as it should be, right? The, these investments are not made to be like bank accounts to come in and out, but you could transfer your holdings to somebody else. But a couple of things there, you're always going to have to sell it at a discount because you're the one who took the big depreciation loss in the beginning that doesn't really transfer over to the next investor. So say this is something you know, everybody forgets about. Say you took like a 40% loss in the first year because you took that bonus depreciation. The person you're transferring it to is going to have to pay that back, but you ran away with the losses. There's not really any way to transfer those losses in that sale. It's got to be from the liquidity event where you sell it to somebody so that other person, just by picking up these shares, say that the investment just gets up to par, they're going to have to pay back the $40,000 or $20,000, 40% of 50 back to the IRS, which could equate to ten dollars or $15,000, depending on what tax bracket they're in. So automatically, you would assume that you would have to take that discount. So from fifty dollars down to 35000 would be the right price. And maybe the deal isn't going good, or maybe there's unknowns. It's a private sale. You have to work it out with that buyer. So maybe the right price, the price is definitely below face value at that point. But for some people, they get in a stressed enough situation where that's what the, the business decision that they have to make. The last thought on this is like, people always ask this question and always kind of like, maybe you shouldn't invest because if you really need this 50 grand, you know, shouldn't invest in my, in my opinion. Most people investing are totally fine with the money being out there and working hard for them. And I asked the person, well, where else are you going to have the money? I'd kind of like to know if you can find something that's backed by a hard asset forms as well. In tough times, that's going to make you more money, a better risk just to return, better sharp ratio. Let me know, man. I'd like to know about it. That's why I don't understand that question. I don't just understand the purpose of that question when people ask it. But I know why would you not want to have your money in something that's working hard for you, value adding underneath the scenes? All right. To keep up, I answer some of your guys' questions here. Pardon me. I want to get the, the right questions. In the syndication e course, which you guys can go and uh, grab at simplepassivecashflow.com slash syndication. So simplepassivecashflow.com slash syndication is a free guide. There's a links in there to get access to the syndication course for purchase. But we mentioned the term capital stack, which is a lot of people in our industry mention that and a lot of investors will mention that. Sometimes people use it improperly. What's the cap stack? That's how people say it. If you want to sound cool, that's something that's a term to use. But the capital stack or cap stack what that is, is like, all right, if you stack all the capital needs for this investment, where do we fall as passive investors or where does the general partnership fall in terms of the picking order and or how is all the money for this investment come about? So let's just use a real sample investment of $100 property, right? You go out and buy a $100 million asset, which my guess would be maybe six or 700 units. We're going to need the down payment first, right? Just like a small rental property, right? No difference. So the down payment might be $20 million. And then we're going to need the bank loan on top of that. In terms of the capital stack, the bank is always going to have the first position, right? The bank is the biggest partner. They've got the most power and control, of, but they're going to be at the top of the capital stack. Then the 20% of the money that we're putting in as investors. Now, if you want to break down that 20% and you really want to get detailed, and I think this is what investors mean when well, what's the capital stack. They already assume it and they forget about the big bank, but they're in there. 
but they want to know of that 20% or maybe 25%, 30% if there's a large CapEx budget. Where's the pecking order in that? And then from there, you know, on the very bottom, general partners are probably on the bottom because they get paid last. And then in there, you might have, sometimes we'll do like private equity, right? A very small portion of the layer of people who just want to put their money in and make a small like, monthly return or yield. They don't, don't have, they don't have any upside, but they're like higher than most general partners on the capital stack. Some passive investors freaked out immediately. They're like, my goodness, there's some investors before us. But what I tell people is it's not a big deal because there's not that many of them. Like with that big of, of an investment of $20 million, that's all you're going to be maybe 150, 200 investors. So it's going to a large wedding and there's a huge buffet there. And the pref equity investors are typically in like five to 10% is what we see from that will go up to the pref equity and get to that first VIP position in terms of this buffet. So if you think about it, like maybe 15, 25 people will go up there and get their food first. So it's not, don't worry, they'll be for everybody. And then the regular passive OP partners will be able to take, partake of their share. Of course, in this example, once we get enough money, we kick out those equity investors say no longer get to keep any of the profits or food in that analogy. But yeah, essentially like this is the capital stack, right? You have the big bank taking up most of it. Then you have your thin layer of equity investors. Sometimes they're not even there. And then you have your regular investors, your limited partners. And then lastly, the general partners there. Good questions. Do you have a common hold time for the syndications? Like you said, like you can have all kinds of different deals, right? We focus in on yield to value add to development projects in the real estate realm. And, and again, under the asset class of workforce style type of housing. So you want to think about it like the whole solar system is eight planets. Maybe we're, we're only in one planet or half planet where we stay in. You could syndicate anything. So in terms of this question, you have a common hold time frame, time period for our type of syndications. We're usually going in with some kind of business plan to rehab the units. A lot of this is dictated on like how tenants naturally move out. And for those of you guys who own rental properties, you guys know the average time is about a couple of years. Some people will stay in there for years or really never move out. Some people will probably be out every year. But on average, we could get through a good chunk of the units in the first year, certainly most of them in the first two to three years. So that kind of dictates like the, the minimum amount of time to hit the full business plan. Of course, you could exit at any point prior to that. And the reasons for that would be either on the good side would be maybe the market goes crazy. It's going to be just a stupid price. Or maybe that there's something in the economy and you're like, maybe we should move towards a sale. In, in our past, when we first doing this, we had a lot of class C properties, which their tenant profile is difficult to work with. The, the collection's really tough. And that's how class C is. And from an investor's point of view, LP partner point of view, you guys don't really deal with all that headache. But where you deal with it is the cash flow can be a bit inconsistent. It can be good too. It can be on the good side. This is why we've moved to more class B properties, better areas these days. But back then it was, man, if we can just get through most of these units, execute majority of the business plan, ex rehab just half of the units, let's just get out if we can make a great per annual basis sale. So for us, usually the baseline is if we can get out before year three or four, 
with a 20% plus. That for me is, yeah, let's just go ahead and sell that thing. It's 20% plus returns, 25% returns per year. That's great. If you're a passive investor, you ought to be happy with that. So it could be earlier, right? Like a quick, fast exit or in, in a way, a faster flip. But with the class B properties, it, it ideally lines up to be longer than three years. When I people ask this question, I give the generic answer, three to seven years. Three years being on the shorter time horizon. Lately, these bigger assets, these class B assets in good areas, what it lines itself up to be more is if we can get most of the rehabs done in the first few years, we refinance year three, get everybody's money back, a good portion of it, or maybe even more. So it's all house money in the game. And we don't dilute investors out. The way I feel like is if you put your money in the beginning, you, ha- you should have the upside at the end. You were here in the beginning when things were the riskiest. And in that way, like we're taking the upside too. Just a side note, I saw a deal recently where like they're giving a high rate of return. And, and I know why they do that because it gets all the sucker passive investors, right? People are like, oh, 15%. But it was like a mess debt deal. So like they were just paid a high interest rate at the beginning, but they didn't get any upside. I would rather get paid no prof but I want to partake in the upside personally in my personal situation. But you guys might be different, right? Everybody has a different situation, might be looking for different things. But to me, when I'm taking on the risk and the investment could go to pay up nothing, I want the upside. I'm willing to wait for that upside and not just let a large prep accumulate. And going back to our class B assets, year three, maybe refinance and then hold that thing. Then you put that long-term Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, which is five to t- 10, 12 years. And you just hold that thing for a really long time. And you're, what you're waiting for is that none of that sucker to come along and buy your property at an extremely good price, a price to make you sell, or you package it, a bunch of properties up, sell it to a REIT to sell for an even better price. That becomes the exit strategy. And the, the reason why you become patient sellers, and we're really patient at that point because on the one hand, we don't want to sell because that refinance the tax-free event for everybody, right? You guys have the key locks or refinances on your own houses. You guys know how that works. You guys got all this money back in which you can go and invest in other properties, hope you invest another deal with us. And you, at that point, you're making infinite returns in the, in the investment currently. You continue to make the cash flow, but you're not paying the taxes on that big capital event yet until the exit. So we're trying to delay that exit as much for everybody and ourselves included, general partners. Like we have to pay the capital gains back to a depreciation recapture when we exit. And it just kind of makes smart to just hold out to have that best strategy from the tax perspective also. And this is where LP general partners are aligned, right? And that's why we make splits the way they are. It's not really like lopsided where at the beginning LPs get paid first, GPs get last. It's consistent as the way we do it. That's the way I like it to see it when I'm an LP partner. I don't like all these confusing kind of waterfalls where the general partner takes more of the upside at the end. If the main operator decides to leave or something happens to them, what happens to the deal? Is that communicated to the LP? Yeah, that would be something very material and substantial that happens. That will definitely be reported to passive investors. If not, that probably invokes some kind of reason to kick out the general partner. If there's some thing to read on the second tier of things to read it's like the voting system and like what constitutes removing of the general partner and a lot of these ppms they should be written very neutrally right 
what happens in rare occasions is like you might have large LPs coming into a deal to take over the general partner and take over the general partnership shares. The PPM is written to not have that happen. I'm sure 99.9% of LPs, not even a, a thought, right? But again, it's happened before, not to us, but to other people. So why it's always written into there, just like how pandemics are now written into private placements as a one of the gazillion of risks in the deal. That's why you see, why is there a limit on how much passive investors can invest? After a certain point, a passive investor gets so big that they could probably do this a lot easier. And I also have heard it's also to do with once you get above a larger size, to keep your protection as an LP passive investor, you want to have a certain threshold of shares. Some of you guys might get afraid by that, that, oh my, I might be considered managing member. Don't worry about it. It's a huge amount, actually. And it's very remote chance of ever being called upon. And it's, that's why these kind of ranges are put in here for these, these reasons and based off case law. Something happens to the, the operator. That's why it's always nice to have a couple of people in the cockpit. I've seen a lot of like general partners with our general partnerships with six, seven, eight. 12 people. I think those are ridiculous. I and mean, a lot of that is just indicative of the new sponsors who just don't have the net worth and they don't have the investor base like how we have here where, where they have to get each person to bring in a million dollars from their friends and families and fools to invest in their first several deals with them. This happens. People ask, oh, do you have key man insurance? We don't have key man insurance. We make a practice not to fly each other with each other. We'll drive each other because that's when all the good ideas happen. And, you know, for process improvement, but uh, no key man insurance. But the, the truth of the matter is a lot of the stuff that we do is very replaceable. And our role is managing the managers and keeping them in line, managing KPIs. It's nothing that can't be hired out. It's just work of the transformation that's happening in our business. As the general partners now, we're realizing that we are good. We're good entrepreneurs and we may not be the best operators of people slated, right? Well, we're looking to do is hire people who do what we do, but more in an institutional setting, right? So they work for one of these big REITs. They're, they're buried in the cubicle land as the director of operations. Somebody with a pedigree of being in the trenches, getting paid $50,000 as a property manager for five, six years, stepping up to owning a property management company, and then maybe possibly running a a, a wing within a large institutional investment firm or a Wall Street company. That's the kind of person we feel is better in, situated in this chief operating uh, officer role for us because we just frankly feel like they do a better job than us. And then, of course, we oversee them and guide the ship to where what's best for passive investor and the company. Suffice to say, I feel like as operators, we're replaceable. And you know, then we have two of us. And if something ever happens, we can pay to have a professional operator jump into the seat for us. If something happens, it'll be very sad, but it, the show will go off. It's, I, I'm sure a lot of you guys, a lot of you guys make very high salaries. It'd be a lot harder to replace you guys at your guys' current role. But I say that and a lot of you guys are probably like laughing right now. And you're like, yep, somebody else will be taking my seat right after. Same thing here. Some of, okay, so some of the deals that I've been in, I've seen this kind of happen. They're more like a the passive investor base kind of steps up to go in there. And these are where you're for your grassroots syndications. 
where some of the past investors might also be general partners. That's a possibility too, but the way we're trending with our business, we want to get up to that scale where we just, we want to be more, we want to have the feel, the interaction with you guys as an investor. We want, we still want that boutique feel, but we want to be structured with multiple hats, like a big institution. So we have to want that best of both worlds where we're getting to this stuff. Kind of a general question here. Uh, how do you evaluate a commercial real estate syndication as an LP? What criteria do you use? There's a myriad of different things you can look at. I, what I would do is take a look at the syndication LPE course. It takes most people eight to 12 hours to go through here, the sections. What I'll highlight here is the number section where we talk a lot about the numbers because the problem with syndication deals is when you watch a lot of the webinars, people always say, well, be conservative, trust us. What the heck does conservative mean? Because I'll flip through a pitch deck and I'll be like, the heck, where are they getting conservative from? They're using like, they're not increasing their version cap one bit. They're actually reversing it. Their rent increases seem really high. I don't know how they're going to get $400 rent increases. And they're assuming that the rents are going to go up three, four percent every year. So a lot of those things I just rattled off are in this number section. What I would suggest go through the first few sections, first get up to the number section, actually the first four sections, and then watch some of our past deal webinars. And you can see a lot of things come to light uh, where if you just watch old deal webinars, it probably just goes right, goes right over your head. So this thing, this course, I think it's a few hundred bucks, but if you become an investor with us, I do reflect this for you because we do educate investors. And when I mean educated investors, you need to go through this eight to 12 hours. Now you're, what you're able to do is talk the talk. And that is what we're trying to bridge you guys over to coming out, joining the family office on a group, interacting with other real investors, building relationships with them. And that's really what passive investors do. They don't really look at the deal. They just invest off people that they trust and have had a good track record. And that sounds a little irresponsible, but that's what passive investors do. And it's probably a better way of going about it because if you invest with honest people, a lot of these deals, if you stabilize assets, they run themselves. For a lot of you more advanced people, I would check out like these the bonus sections where a lot of my students, we just get on the call for an hour. There's several of these calls where we just go back and forth. This is like the syndicator lies section where there's a whole bunch of things that I pointed out and called BS on as a general partner looking at other people's deals. There is this video series, like I said, where my students have gone through and asked these different questions after going through all the basics, of course. So I think this is when you get into that second layer. So a lot of these questions get answered here and it makes for a great conversation. And these are the conversations that you have with other of your peers going through this stuff. So again, check that out. And after, and there's a big, there's a down, good download here at the very end, the syndication due diligence scorecard checklist. It gives you like, I don't know how many, maybe like hundred questions to ask that you probably shouldn't ask the general partner. You should be already be knowing if you're going to invest based on your pure network. It's a good trick question, but that's how I would evaluate commercial real estate syndications at LP. Go through this content that I've created. I don't think that there's anything else like it out there. There's a lot of books that just flip floppity give you the same old spiel that everybody else does, but nothing really goes into it like my e-force. And if you guys have already done it, you guys like it, please don't share it with your friends. Don't share the logins. Please, because it's messed up. I said I don't care. Share the syndication like e-force, which is this URL up here with your friend, so that you can build up your network around you. 
some of your friends can find other people. And yeah, that's really how this all moves. That's why people join the family office on a mastermind. Answer this. I don't know the answer to the other question, Joseph. I don't have time to figure out what that current rolling IR. And this is why we need to hire people to chug those numbers. But you know, as you can notice, that kind of gets the more side of an institutional investment company that we have a minion to pay $60,000 to make those kind of graphs for you guys. At this point, we're focusing more on running the assets properly and we're running things very deep for that. But I would probably say IR is probably above the 20% a year. I would say people always like they look at the IR, but to me, it doesn't, IR doesn't really mean anything. I think anything above 14% is peachy. That's going to get to more most of you guys want to be financially in the next five to 10 years. Any question here? What is huge competition for the GUI? There's a lot of people out there, I'm sure. There's a lot of landmines out there also. So I think that what sets us apart is I don't think there's a lot of pop-up syndicators. They raise money for deals. They go into these daisy chain deals. And it's funny because like I'm on a lot of like deal lists and I, I see the same deal getting pushed up by five, six people. You know, that's illegal to do. I mean, you're not supposed to raise capital and not be a, an operator or have that carried interest in terms of being a, a loan guarantor. A lot of people have gotten busted by this. Um, a lot of guys, you probably all know. But it's just, it seems competitive, but it's not because there's not, there's not many people going after the same assets in the same markets. And I mean, in single family home world, there's, there's so so much competition. If some of you guys used to be home flippers and you're one of the areas, there's so much competition because everybody is competitive. There's so much competition. So many people have access to this type of stuff. And this is the exact reason why we always try and swim upstream. You know, when we did 50, 100 units, that's something that the average Joe can do after owning rental properties for several years. They can get into this stuff. They can scrounge up 12 investors and go into a deal raise a million dollars, which is why we swam upstream to get into these B assets where you might need 25, 30, 40 million dollars and you got to raise a dozen million dollars to do it. Not many people can do that. Also, the pop-up syndicators can only raise a million, two million dollars. And it's funny. And this is in the secrets of syndication section. They'll say, oh, deal's going fast. So you better put in because we just sold out in two days. Well, yeah, if you only had to raise freaking one, two million dollars, I would have been sold off in a second. I'm here just, I got to raise the whole thing. Like Aubrey was a like 12, 13 million dollar raise. That took me a long time. I'm not, it's a lot of money. People, most people can't even raise five million dollars plus, but it takes our group maybe about a month to raise that much money, which I think is still amazing. And then the reason why I've always tried to make it more exclusive is I've had situations in the past where we've had to remove a general partner and when you have all these small capital groups it makes that kind of an, an impossible to do to overthrow should the, it's, it's called for and also SEC wise again it's illegal you don't want one person who's falling in another syndicator to swallow the pot for everybody because if there's a lawsuit it messes up the whole pond and the pool case. So this is why we are also doing developments. If you guys have mentioned, uh, seen, because developments are even larger deals. I think Chase Creek, we had to bring in like $14 billion. That's a huge raise for most people that just out of the reach, right? And we need the technical expertise of development people. Most of your pop-up syndicators are still working day jobs. They, they just don't have the expertise. They can take over, you know, class C, B asset, Get a proper manager in there who will 
but they can't really do it at scale. I think which we've developed the the teams and and we were able to do that and they can't really get into development too because they don't have that's when you really that's what kind of separates the the kids from the adults in my opinion. The development is the stuff that I did as an engineer, the construction management part, the contract management. That's what separates house first from people developing large property. And the truth of the matter is you pay professionals to do a lot of that for you, right? The professional engineers, the architects, the construction management firms, but you need money to do that. And that's really the barrier to entry. So that's why we stimulate upstream. We still like to stabilize cash flowing assets with a little bit of value add, of course. And I think that'll continue to be the bread and butter, but... Probably moving more towards larger assets, 300, 400 units plus, because they just seem to be more robust than their little 150 properties and below. And for us, we get annoyed the general partners that like deals are like the 100 unit deals. We don't really look at too much anymore unless the returns are really going to be there because it's really not worth the squeeze. And so in a way, we're becoming like large fish that are like, I don't want to deal with anything less than 2000 units. That's how like the big REITs and the Wall Street companies arms but we're like i said we're below that and and that i think that's where the sweet spot is 200 units to 500 600 unit properties of course the right deals that's always been the focus getting the best deals off market properties getting to the top of those broker preferred lists that's really the big thing in terms of the competition and i think 2020 was a big key year for us many people just fell off the face of the earth in terms of buyers we're still chugging along and it was a little scary, especially at that time we were doing a couple of projects and people just didn't want to invest. And I get it. They were a little afraid come March, April of last year, but we were able to get those deals done. And that's the brokers remember that. This is a good question. We all like to pull back the curtain. Okay. So a lengthy question here. I'll first ask, answer like, what's the difference between 506B and 506C? So 506B are deals where Actually, most deals are structured like this. If you go look on the SEC website, they call it Edgar. I don't know what it stands for, but it's essentially a database of all deals out there. Most deals, I'd say 90 to 97% of deals are 506B offerings, which is the traditional way of syndicating money where you go out to your private list. Nothing is mass marketed out there. It's a private list, and therefore you can take in a limited number of passive investors or limited number of non-accredited passive investors. So what a lot of people are doing these days is they're doing a lot of like gray area marketing deals on the internet or they're really out there or they might be using, I don't know, strange SEC stuff where I think their lawyers are telling them, hey man, better just bring in a credit only and do a 506C offering. And then you can just go balls to the wall and just mass market for investors. And we tried to do this a long time ago. You guys are going to think this is funny, but we realized that, hey, if you just do a Facebook ad, people just aren't going to throw in fifty, dollars $100,000. And plus, those people aren't on social media just throwing down money on ads they see on that platform. I, and I, this is where you always have to test things. And I was earlier doing this. And then obviously now I have the firm belief that if people don't know who you are, you haven't built a relationship with people and you don't have the right investors, then you're, they're not going to invest anyway. So... I realized that the 506C option to just go out there and blast the internet in a way do Hail Marys for our investors just doesn't work. And it doesn't fit my business where, again, the buoy was meant to be like a petite group. It's just a smaller inner circle. Granted, our circle is a lot bigger than most people who are just blasting stuff out on the internet. 
that's for sure. And that's indicative of, I think you guys have invested over like maybe $120 million. It's just crazy to me that just you guys have entrusted me in the system that much, which I take great respects at that. But a lot of these guys are just like, screw it. I have no ability to build relationships. I just need to shoot this stuff out into the internet or do radio ads, podcast ads. And I'm, I need to only do 506C. And when you do 506C as a syndicator, now you're only allowed the government SEC says you're only allowed to take it accredited investors at that point. And to make it harder is when you take in those investors, government says, it's just indicator, we don't trust you. So we need third party verification that these guys are all accredited. So that makes it a little bit of a headache administrative wise when people go into those deals, they have to have that third party, that letter from commonplaces, investorverify.com. So that said, we, we still do 506B offerings to our private group. You got to build a relationship first. I got to feel comfortable with you. I'm a little bit still hesitant on sophisticated investors or non-accredited investors is a loose term. But what I want to see is somebody who's owned rental property before. It is a funny one where we had like a 50-year net. And those of you guys who've owned rental properties before, you guys all know that so turn on those air conditioners for the first time in March or April. A good chance that they're just going to break. And sure enough, Anflow went offline and we were able to fix a couple of them. And then it was like a ten or $15,000 bill that's on the P&Ls. So like back then, the investors, they watched this stuff like a hawk. And the accredited investors were like, what the heck is this? $15,000 repair on HVACs? That's, you are a horrible syndicator sponsor operator. You're supposed to make your management and your maintenance and check the stuff that doesn't break. Come on, man. Dude, do you even own rental property? All the sophisticated investors on rental properties are like, wow, I was surprised. Not more than five, bro. And they just know and they understand. That's what I mean by understanding the business for stuff. And you know what? We're not going to pay distributions that much. It's probably fine for that quarter, but that's the stuff that kind of happens. So sophisticated investors on the whole grad scheme and things are less desirable overall. So if you're a sophisticated investor, non-accredited, there's a whole like hour long coaching call that I did with one of my non-accredited investors where we talked about the etiquette, right? Like, you want to have yourself removed from investor list. You want to be that real annoying non-accredited investor because unfortunately non-accredited investors, we all know don't have that much money. You go into one or two deals, you ask a gazillion questions, and you're real pain in the butt. And you do your whole load and you're not going to invest anymore. It's not a very good investment of time for a syndicator sponsor. On the other hand, I get it. I was there not too long ago and I understand that what else is there? You can go burn some properties, which is a waste of time and all our uh, risk. Or you can go buy a bunch of turnkeys like how I did. And we all know how that is the greatest thing in the world, especially when your net worth gets higher for scalability. So this is where I have a soft spot in my heart for the rights, uh, sophisticated, non-accredited investors. But this is where the, the, the goal of myself is to bring in the right people, right? This is why we had to remove maybe half a percent, less than half a percent of people who come in because number one, they're just assholes. Right? And I say that and people think that I'm impatient, but I like to think I am. But you guys know who I'm talking about. Some people are just jerks and they don't belong here. I don't want to work with them. And I say that because a lot of you guys are awesome people. I'd like to have beers with you guys. I encourage you guys to come down to Hawaii, hang out with me and the rest of the group because we have a strong community of hardworking professionals here. And let's all 
drink and beware, marry and get rich together. That's the whole, that's, that's a cool thing to be a part of. Some people, they just, and it doesn't, and this is what I'm realizing too. And this is good insights as we kind of work with higher net worth clients. Like it's not really about how much money you have, like your money mindset. Some people are just very tight. I always work with this with myself, my wife, or you could have a lot of money, but you could be very cheap up here or scarcely mind. That's unfortunately what gets you to the point where you have money. You have half a million dollars network to get to accredited status. But at some point, the switch needs to happen. And it's very unusual when you have people that are above a million, two million dollars network, that switch hasn't happened. And I always feel that it's not like they're bad people. It's just the money-wise but maturation process, they're not quite there yet. Like the people that are like, you've got a million, two million dollars, just kind of willing to pay a penny on like education or meeting other people or the, the family office. I just don't understand it. Like, uh, but I get it. I was there at one time. I didn't want to pay for anything. But when I did, that's when my investment started to take off and I got rid of those turnkey rentals and really started to move as a passive investor myself. But enough on that. I don't know. Maybe we'll go to 506C at some point. What's going to trigger that is like my lawyers probably just say, yeah, like, this thing is getting just too big. This investor group, we need to just be more conservative SEC-wise and just go straight accredited investors. And at that point, I'm going to be a little sad because the non-accredited investors are most fun, right? <laughs> They're the kind of the spice of the party. And I think they need it the most. And maybe the solution is maybe one day I just do a reggae plus like George Newberry's AHP fund. But the hard thing there is that when you start to bring in investors under 5000 even when you bring in investors more than $40,000, $30,000, your exception rate of difficult investors goes way, way up with those people. It, 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 us sponsors, we talk about it all the time and we exchange people's blacklists. We don't want them in our groups. Who are those problem investors? So I mean, we talk, everybody talks. And when you bring in investors less than a certain threshold, problems always come up because they're just more attached to their money as they should be. Right? It means more, 50, 30 grand means more to a guy who's half a million dollars net worth than $200,000 to somebody who's $5 million net worth. It's completely logical and I get it. Do I ever communicate with folks from SEC? No, I do not. I have my lawyer do that. I have folks ever talk to them. It's like, oh, you try not to the bank. The lawyer always talks to them if they're ever doing anything non-administrative. And just like how you never talk to IRS, you always have your CPA do it, by the way. Oh, good, yeah. There's another follow-up question there. That's a good one too. The second follow-up question there, although I'm a credit investor, I've got plenty of friends and family that want to invest in real estate syndications, but they're not accredited, which I think is unfair. And yeah, I, I totally agree. These are the guys who need these types of opportunities the most. Problem is when you come into this world, who do you trust? Because there's big institutions out there that don't have as great returns. They have a lot of investors and you've got complete newbies that are on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth deal. And then you want to try to find guys with good track records who haven't gone up the sponsor creep and starting to uh, take more as general partners. Who do you trust? Because from the exterior, it's all a digital marketing game. Everybody was wearing suits. Everybody seems to have a big uh, follow. And then this is why the, the network, your network is your net worth. It's why it's good to get into an inner circle like the family office group to build real relationships, with other passive investors to invest. They draft your fullback, right? Follow other people that you trust who put their money into somebody in the past and just invest alongside them. So you say, it seems like the best deals are open to accredited investors. I would not agree with that. I would not agree. Though, again, 
most deals are 506B, open to all investors, pretty much just sophisticated ones if you're not accredited. But the only the minority of deals are blasted out there at credit investors. And that's why I think this is where you guys get a little bit of what you guys see is a lot of the crowdfunding websites, they act as a broker dealer. And I think there's a lot of, I'm not sold on the whole like certified XYZ crowdfunding website. I think that's a nonsense. All the crowdfunding website is doing is offering a website and people, they spend a lot of money on marketing and to get people to get to these websites. And they take a big commission and fee off of the top. I've looked into maybe using some of the crowdfunding websites for our deals, but they'll charge me like an arm and a leg to raise capital from investors. And the hard thing is as the sponsor, I want to build a relationship with investors because you're not going to get rich off somebody investing once. I need want people to invest multiple times. And when I have that middleman in there, the, the crowdfunding website, I'm just not getting that. So again, that doesn't, that's why another reason, the second reason, other than the fact that it's, it's expensive. And then and when I say it's expensive, it's coming out of the passive investor's wallet. And the general partner's wallet at the end of the day too. But, you know, it's just like raising the minimum wage, right? It's going to come out of everybody's wallet to do that. But I guess I don't want to go there. Do you anticipate the SEC relaxing rules on credit investor status in the, in the future? Like I said, it doesn't matter because most deals are accepting non-accredited investors anyway. You just have to build your network. And, and when you're asking this question, that's the clear sign. You need to build your network to get access to the majority of deals out there. You're just seeing the stuff that is mass marketed out there for accredited only taking advantage of the new marketing rules, which came around crowd, the crowdfunding laws. I actually anticipate SEC getting more and more stringent on this type of stuff because I think that they want to reach the barrier to entry so they can keep most people trapped in the retail investment market, REITs and other 401k type of products. I also hear them making increasing the threshold for accredited status too, but I wouldn't worry too much about it. Mark's pitching me softballs that integrate with other questions I have. Okay. What are the main differences between a GP and a KP? So technically, general partnership is GP and then LPs are passive investors, which are also you guys here. The general partnership is like a catch-all term for the general partnership. In the analogy, it's like the cockpit, right? You have multiple pilots. You even have some people that don't really do anything, such as the key principles, the KPs or the loan guarantors. All those three things mean the same thing. Again, a key principle, loan guarantors, same thing. And what this person does is they lend their balance sheet to the general partnership. And therefore, they are technically in the general partnership too, where they, let me explain it this way. So when we go out and we get a loan for a, a deal, the general part or the key principles of people signing up to loan guarantor that debt so it doesn't go the debt doesn't go in any of the passive investors' name needs to be greater than or equal to the loan. So just to think of an example, we just closed like a thirty million dollar deal. Me and my partner, our net worth is not combined through thirty million dollars yet. So we need to pull in a, a guy or two with high enough net worth to qualify for that loan. So we'll bring in a guy and he will be a key principal loan guarantor to also sign up the balance sheet. There's also two more big requirements that aren't talked about a lot, but we need to have the experience. Somebody needs that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac card, especially if you're going after those types of loans, but you need to have the experience. So a lot of times like, we have it already. So we're not really looking from a key principal status, but if you're like a new syndicator trying to do your first deal, you're going to need this person in your key principal team. Good freaking luck, right? <laughs> Who wants to sign on a debt for a newbie? But you also need, like, there's a, a liquidity requirement too. So 
a lot of these deals, they may require this one really ranges. So maybe like 10% or like the first six months of PITI, they need that, which can be a substantial amount. It might be like a hundred, five hundred thousand dollars some of these deals, which most times we'll have. And this is why I do my infinite banking so I can keep dry powder on the site. But most passive investors, you guys, the the recommendation is just train that thing completely out, right? It's like a HELOC. You got five hundred thousand dollars access to HELOC or infinite banking. You invest that money right away and you always just run it at, at, at zero. But the way I use infinite banking is I always keep dry powder around several hundred thousand dollars just in case one of these deals I need to put in money to avoid a capital call. Because to me, capital calls is just not it's not an option, period. Or I need to put money in to have liquidity source to qualify for a certain loan, which is another reason why. So the, the key principles are, yes, technically in the general partnership and they are comp- also compensated for doing so. A lot of times we'll set aside, we'll have to divvy this up against the general key principles accordingly. And we always try and treat the key principles right, especially the ones that have been working with us for quite a while. They were the kind of the guys that got us to where we're at to get our network up to where we can co-sponsor loans on our own network on our own at this point. But in the larger deals, we still need folks to do that. So if you're a key principal, if you're looking to be a key, key principal, your, your net worth probably needs to be higher than $5 million to be considered for it. And then tail on question, how do general partners get paid? Depends on what the PPM says. See, every deal is a bit different, but the way we kind of structure things, it's a straight split. And at the end, effectively, we get paid when you guys get paid. So that's why there's that kind of alignment. And when the deal doesn't do well, we don't do well either. But the, the thing... What's nice about being an LP is your downside is pretty much limited to just losing your initial investment. And none of the loan gets put in your name. So you guys just walk away and it falls on the key principles, which and typically the general, the operating officers who also sign up debt too. That's where the loan kind of falls. If anybody wants to sign up for millions of dollars of debt, raise their hand, let us know, we compensate for it. Probably a lot of you guys are like, yeah, screw that. This is why I'm a passive investor. This is why I don't want to be a managing member. I don't want to buy legal liability also. That's cool. I get it. Somebody's got to do it though. We're willing to do it. Miscellaneous question. How many active investors in the GUI now? I think there's 700. I haven't updated. We did a big deal recently. I haven't updated them, but I think at least 600. How many people in the database? Goodness, I don't know. Like not, most people aren't going to do anything. Just like anything of that. Maybe... 75 people are in the family office of HANA group, they're in their circle. Are there any opportunities for limiting partners to be more involved with syndication other than providing their investments, participative meetings? No. In the beginning, there were some people that, hey man, I'm going to give you $50,000 and you're going to teach me everything you do. No, we certainly don't do that. We don't need you guys to take pictures, stuff like that. It gets in the way more. In fact, a lot of the deals, we, we tell you guys, please do not visit the property because the seller is typically a little bit on edge. They, a lot of times the sellers don't tell their staff that they're selling property. And I, I can see pros and cons for doing that uh, from their perspective. But no, you're limited partners. I think you, from one perspective, you guys need, need to know your role, right? You guys are expected to spend your time finding deals, spending and make, doing what you guys do best. A lot of times that is just making money at your day job. So I think some of you guys have been more active in the past. I would say figure out what your highest and best use is 
And if you make more than 100K a year, likely to go double down at a day job. Now, you may not like your day job. And I get it. I was like that. But that may be your quickest ticket out of the rat race to doing so, becoming more of an astute passive investor by doing into this type of stuff. And in fact, again, this goes into LP etiquette discussed in the syndication e-course. You think you might be helpful. Some other people, not saying this is me, but some people might think of it as very annoying that a passive investor really wants to get more involved. The best passive investor is the person who brings in their money routinely and then doesn't say a thing. That's what sponsors want the most. Sorry if it comes across rude. And like I said, that's not me in particular, but that's probably what most people would say in the industry. You guys asked for it. You guys asked for the truth. What is the time frame? should probably make a slide for this. Good question, guys. I think it's good that you hear other people's questions too, in case you didn't think of it. The time frame rise. What is the time frame when you finding a deal before it goes offered to the LP investors? So this is all the it all works. Most of the deals that we get are through broker relationships. Now it might be off market where the broker brings it to us and it and it doesn't go to the competitive bidding situation. Kind of the game that we'll play is maybe the whisper price might be 30, 32 million, but we put in something slightly lower than that. And then we just have a whole bunch of lines in the pond to pick up. And then when the sellers get desperate or there's something changes, when we've had this happen or the seller, their health declines or COVID was a big thing, right? Like a lot of these sellers, they're sitting on a lot of equity. Most of these people we buy these properties from are have a huge equity position. They're more modern Paul investors, which isn't the greatest thing for returns, obviously, and how you want to run your properties. But when your net worth is 40, 50, $100 million plus, heck, you can do what you want. So what those people will do is they'll go through COVID and that this is what we're seeing a lot now. They'll go through COVID and they'll be like, well, it's kind of a risk holding on this whole pain in the butt to go through such uncertainty. Um, yeah, let's sell this thing. <laughs> So as soon as like January 1st, February came around, the vaccine started to make its way into the population. And as you guys all know, like that was at the point when the rents really started to skyrocket and it's still skyrocketing now. A lot of these sellers had the psychology whether it was right or wrong. To, yeah, let's just sell it. Let's put it on the market, get it out there. So a lot of the deals now are that COVID type of push them over the edge to sell, whether it was right or wrong. If it were me, maybe it was probably make quite more sense to just sell the or hold on to the property another three to six months. I've got a property that's selling next week and it's the same situation. Get it, same predicament. I just don't think that in that one particular property, there's much more flow in it. And I think this is the opportunity. So I get the whole psychology and it makes sense because like I said, one of my deals on that same frame of mind too. What is the, so... The deal goes out, the seller wants to sell it, it goes out, maybe it, it stews around for another month or two. But sometimes it can stew around for like over a year. I think um, those of you guys who got into Courtney Square, which just went mostly to the family office people because it was so small. We bought the first property, Arbor Village, from them early last year. And this is the same seller and it finally just trick it up that they, they're ready to sell this one. So a lot of the properties we bought from previous sellers actually. A lot of it is because they trust us that we work proven closers and we, we had a smooth closing. We didn't jerk them around the too much stuff, like how some buyers will do things. Uh, and that's part of the culture, right? We treat people, we act with honor. We don't dig around with people, investors or sellers. 
So again, back to the question, sorry. So the deal goes out, it goes to put in a letter of intent, which is very simple, like document says, I hear the terms of the agreement, it gets signed, we settle on a price, then we go through a purchase sale contract, which can take another couple of weeks. And at that point, we open up for the due diligence period, which could be a week, could be a few weeks. And so all that kind of takes about a month, but in parallel in there is when we don't really put a deal until we get it on the purchase and sale contract and really done a lot of the first diligence. Yeah, it, it could be a couple of years. We know a deal, but we don't know really know what's happening. But usually we know pretty firm out like a month or two. So this is again, why it's nice to join the family office group because those are the guys who get the insider information, what's coming down the pipeline. And like the best that you guys are going to get is sometimes I'll tip you guys off on my signature lines, on my emails. Unless you guys are looking to sell properties and unload more than a quarter million dollars into a deal, please don't ask me what's coming up next month or the next quarter. The party line will just be like, check out the signature line, what's coming out. Next question, how far do you communicate your exit strategy for a syndication when you're ready to sell? So multifamily, the, the markets are pretty liquid. You can sell just like houses, right? Like you guys put a house on the market, it's gone in like a week and you're often moving to sale and close. So same thing like multifamily, we can put it out on the market, test the market and make a couple of weeks. And, and then if you have a lot of, likely you're going to have a lot of offers. So you want to pull offers together, maybe do a round or two of best final offers and that could extend things out several days. But with multifamily, it could probably be well within passage diligence period within a month and then sell within a next couple of months after. So probably take three months total just to be on the conservative side. When do we communicate out the passive investors? Here's the hard part. Like we don't really want to communicate anything unless it's certain. Sometimes we'll hit that we're trying to test the market, but then what's difficult on our side is like at that point, investors are already starting to count their money. And that kind of gets a little annoying to answer questions. And so we just thought about putting it on the market. We're just trying to see, relax everybody. And you're already trying to figure out what's my taxable burden? Do I have much passive activity losses? So this is why... We don't really try and communicate things out until we're dang sure what we're going to sell or what we're going to do. Because sometimes we may just fall back and like on a couple of deals. We just decided that it was better to refinance and hold for the long term. A lot of that is the general partnership huddles. What's the best strategy? Again, this is falls back in the last question. How do the general partnerships get paid? And this is why it's nice to just have even alignment because we make money when you guys make money. We're in a way, by us looking out for ourselves, we look out for you guys, vice versa. And we're also have a keen one eye is on taxes, just like you guys too. I know one thing that, that kind of dictates a lot of behavior. We try and we don't want to like the three year mark is very important for most of the CPAs. I think that there's a kind of like a unspoken three year rule where anything less than that is considered put or flip. Anything more than that, you fall under long-term capital gains at that point. Or some CPAs are more aggressive, some are less. But that's something we definitely think of in the back of our head. Most passive investors who are in a lot of deals, they just don't worry about it anymore. There's so much to study state that I get it. If you're in under 10 deals or even six deals, you're probably like really micromanaging your portfolio. And if that's the case, you got to get into more deals, get more diversified. So you just don't care after a while. Can you explain how the callback works if deal goes south and liquidation needs to occur? This has never happened to me. So I don't know, but my understanding, the passive investors, LP partners, that's the beauty of being an LP partner. In addition to have very good to no liability, 
terms of somebody trips or falls or something like that, environmental stuff. But if the deal goes south, which I don't, you know, this is why you invest in real estate, right? Preservation of capital is pretty much something you don't really have to worry about, especially in stabilized assets. The market's always going up too, which we don't really assume, but it always is. So you always have equity there at the end of the day. Let's just say maybe you lose a little bit of money or the investment goes backwards. Well, in not recourse debt, which we try to get, we're really on the hook just for the initial investment. So in majority, most cases, you're just limited to your initial investment. So you lose it, you walk away. But then I think the question is digging a little bit deeper. Okay, so once the passive investors are all gone, They've lost their initial investment. Now it falls on the general partnership and the key principles on the hook for the debt. If there's some kind of recourse component to the loan, those are the kind of people who pony up. That's why they're compensated for putting their net worth on the line with that type of stuff. So people always say, do you believe in the deal? Are you damn right? I believe in the deal. I just signed on the $20 million note in case the deal goes backwards and south. I have to pick up the bill for that. So I guess the and take that question like and that's why it's nice to go into non-recourse deals too because unless there's any foul play involved you're limited just to your initial investment i guess charlotte's got a lot of questions here charlotte do you want to come off of mute and step out of the shadows and come out and ask some of these questions live just me a little bit chance to catch my breath too hi can you hear me yeah hey oh. sorry you had to type so much yeah so yeah. So I have uh, some family and friends, you know, it's just an example. I have a friend, she's just basically retired and she's got 600,000. She's almost a millionaire. She's got 600,000 in her four vacation, rolling it over. And she wants to invest in, what are you doing, Charlotte? And I'm like, I'm doing this. And but she's not accredited. I feel like referring her over to you or some other syndicators I know, but like, she's not accredited. So all these presentations are like credit investor and credit investor. So I don't want to send her to a syndicator and she's not accredited. It's just, I, I feel like I'm sending her in the wrong direction. To me, whenever I listen to these deals, it just seems like they're geared toward accredited investors. So I just don't want to steer her in the wrong way and be like, these deals aren't open to me because I'm not an accredited investor. And I have the same thing with some of my family members. Are these rules like hard and fast or, or not really? I'm just, I don't understand this whole accredited investor thing. That's why I would Scratching my yeah, if they're saying accredited investors only, they're probably doing 506 deals, likely because their lawyer has already advised them to do it because they're already really out there on the internet. They're skating the, the gray area already. So if that's the case, then yeah, that's a waste of time to send them over there. No, I guess I'm specifically talking to you, like you, right? <laughs> Yours are 506B. And when you say it's open to sophisticated, like a small number of sophisticated investors, that's fine. If I send over like family and friends that are non-accredited, they'll be able to get into your deals is, I guess, the final question I'm, I guess, oh, trying to get at. I mean, look, it's more about like the person to just connect. If anything, it can just help them do whatever they're doing too. But I would say just send them over and get on the, get on a call and see what I can do to help. If they've got to be in the right mindset. They've got to get sophisticated. Getting the syndication e-course is good for starters. And then talking to people like yourself, but they're in that, that tough spot, right? They're not accredited yet. They have a decent amount of money. They certainly don't want to screw around with some stupid turnkey rentals, but I guess they like first, not stock market. Uh, it's it, the it, only option you have. If you exactly. Have like that's the worst, right? For everybody here, if you guys make referrals to people and they go through the onboarding call, I do hook them up with the syndication e-course or if they're lower net worth, 
I do give them the remote investor e-course to go buy some turnkey rentals for free. And I do that because your friend is probably not like you, Charlotte. They're not going to read every little thing and come on a Saturday morning webinar to, to learn. They're just not wired like that as most of my friends weren't too, which is why we give them these courses for free as a thank you to you and them. But it also makes your life a lot easier because I'm sure they're asking all these questions that I'm totally fine answering uh, at mass here, but I'm sure you get these questions a lot from all your friends that don't do anything. And then now you see why I made the whole podcast in the first place. It gets a little redundant after a while. So the thing is like they go to the the curriculum first. That's the first step, right? Get educated. Make sure they know what they themselves are getting in. Okay, that's fair. My friends and family are not going to buy turnkey rentals. They're just investors. Like they want to invest their money and they don't want to put it in the stock market. So they asked me and I'm like, well, I like real estate. So and it is a big jump to go from stocks and bonds to real estate syndications. I agree with you. There's some education there, but. My observation from high net worth people not necessarily the smart people. And I'd rather be high net worth than smart, for sure. But like they trust people. They figure out people around them that are doing good things like yourself. And they just follow them. They trust but verify, but they follow their peers. So there's some people in the group that don't know anything, know absolutely nothing about real estate or investing. But their their good friend has been in past deals. They trust the, the system, they trust the people and they know enough to know that they need to trust their friend. Um, and so that's why your network is so important. Really. I, I think a lot of people maybe on the line here are the people who like analyze things to the nth degree. And at some point, yeah, you need to do that. But then again, you don't. There's two paths to get to where you want. And we all want the same thing, which is financial freedom through investing in good alternative investments get a little bit of tax advantages here. There, infinite banking, that's the trifecta right there. You can go learn it all yourself or you can just copy what your friends do. Thank you. Uh, if anybody's got more like dialogue questions like that, maybe you can raise your hand and we can have you step up like how Charlotte did. Thanks for doing that. All the way. Okay. How do you think about pacing your deals throughout the year? Is there an upper limit number of assets that you can successfully manage at one time? In theory, we could manage an infinite amount of deals going through the pipeline because we hire people at boots on the ground. And we also have a middle run of management that we're developing. Where the choke point occurs is, especially as co-signers, there's a lot of like paperwork that goes, especially in closing, that the weeks lead up to closing that a lot of you guys don't see that it's just a lot of stuff. And the other big choke point is investors like you guys, right? The bandwidth to funding deals, which if you guys can help us out and refer your friends, that always kind of gets a gold star with you guys. And we, I'm rolling out some cool, fun gifts for you guys. Some of you guys who have those cool, simple, passive cash flow shirts. And again, we for referrals, we do give the syndication e-course or the remote investor e-course to the people who join the group. And we also give it to you guys too. If you guys don't have it already as another thank you. And then there's also a couple thank you gifts that I'm rolling out next year. So that's a surprise coming up down the road. But yeah, operationally, or I guess investment-wise, and this may apply to more passive investors. Like when you go through a deal, the, the most vulnerable time is in the beginning of the deal. Granted, you're well-capitalized, which is offsets this, but 
when you go into a deal, there's always going to be skeletons hidden in the closet, right? Like it, the rent rolls, perhaps the, this happens a lot of times, like the, the last manager, just stuff in warm bodies into the, the investment to fill up the rent rolls to show the occupancy needed to close. And like, that's always to be assumed that's going to happen to some type of extent. Lost the lease, you've got to burn that off. Like I said, the, the beginning is the most difficult time. And this is why we don't pay investors in the first quarter or two until, especially the bank allows us to do, sorry, we don't do that. I probably should just so I don't, not as stressed out um, telling you guys what you guys don't want to hear that we don't pay distributions the first quarter because it is long. I get it. For a lot of new people, it can be a long time, especially when you have your skeptic spouse on your case, where did you do with that $50,000? Did you get anything back from it? It's been a, a quarter or two. But no, we don't really raise extra money to pay out investors uh, to do that because some people do, which to me is a Ponzi scheme. But and another thing that's outlined in the syndication e-course of things to look out for. As an investor, like maybe you don't want to have more than one of these deals in this restabilization period. So it would make sense to time your investments to only have one or at most two of these investments at any one time because it's like a recession, black swan event could technically happen at any point. So you know, would it be good to have your pants down to your ankles at any one time or more than one? Granted, you still have to be aggressive because that's how you make money. But maybe if you space your investments one a quarter, couple a year, and I think that's the prudent thing to do from a passive investor perspective. But for us as operators, we build systems so we can take in an infinite amount of stuff. But I, I get, again, I think the limiting factors, investor capital from you guys. And because there's still a small group, right? We don't have, we don't have guys that can put in a million dollars each, like how the institutionals folks work with family offices. We have like over, like I said, six, 700 or so live investors that invest at least fifty, dollars $100,000. It's a big number. It's a bigger number than I think 99% of other people out there who do this. But there's always something bigger than you. I've got to assume to me is the limiting factor here. And also like whenever we do a deal, I'll be honest, it's a little bit of stress. Maybe at some point, I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe maybe in 20 years, we'll see. But I enjoy the family office side more because it's a big group of people and it's consulting. You guys who are consultants know it's never your fault. But on the deals, I live and die by the deal reputation wise. It is certainly stressful on my part and the team's part. So uh, there's a number of max bandwidth there. And also, I guess maybe I forgot about this, but like deal flow wise, we're only just getting what makes sense and it works that kind of hits the projections. So we can try and hit that equity multiplier that we're looking in that five to six year period. So I think just things naturally happen or this is why we focus on the two or three different major markets and Huntsville is another one. If we just have a pool or two in the water to those markets. We don't focus on all the markets like the Carolinas, Florida's, I'm sure Atlanta are great markets. Just don't, we just we try and stay in our lane for a, a bit. Maybe we make a huge second wing to go after these other markets one day, but likely not. That's just, I don't think that's in the growth plan for us. And no, I don't think we're going to start to do self-storage or mobile home parks and stuff like that. Get to what's, what are competitive advantages. I see a, a question on some taxes stuff. I'm going to get to all that stuff at the same time. Then I'm on investment. So with us, 
I think typically like 50,000 is a minimum investment and a little bit of backstory to that, like larger institutions, folks have been around for decades, big followings. To me, not as good as returns because the fee structure is higher. Like you got to look at some of these deals. Some of those fee structures are huge. Like acquisition fees could be like four, five, six percent plus. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad deal for some of the folks who are four or five million dollars plus net worth. It might make sense to do some of these institutional uh, operators. Those minimum investments will be a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollar minimums. But for some of the new guys, newbies, and we were there at one time, I'd say to be desperate to take in twenty five grand at that point. We will say we will never do it anymore because of quality of investors. But then again, we try trying something new on this that last one where with it being a smaller deal, we tried to lower the minimums. It's funny. There's like already like almost a hundred investors in that deal and still crack that number, which exactly to my point why we don't go so low minimums. But that's like the way things work. So like I'm always some people are like, Oh, I got into this deal for ton five. Whoa. Good luck, man. You're probably still desperate to get money in. You're probably not the deal to invest with. But hey, you're happy. That's all that matters, I guess. And hey, it's real estate. It'll probably work out at the end of the day. How do you determine operating budget and CapEx budget? So the operating budget is like, what is the property going to run at in terms of income, concessions, is your income line, and then your expenses, all like landscaping, electricity, all the expenses. How do we determine all those numbers? But what we do is like we... We're looking at a deal. We have the existing profit and loss statement. Right? So we have the run rates for the last two years. We can check what it is. And this is why we buy stabilized assets because it's not too much of a stretch to make an assumption. Here's the trend line. And here's what we think it'll be. So we have a great data point right there or series of data points. Then we go ahead as sponsors, general partners. We have at assets um, in the era. We make our operating budget estimation, which maybe we sell, sell ourselves short. Or I like to think that me and my partners, we have, there's one good thing that we do well. We realize that we're not the best at doing everything. And most times somebody else there is doing it better than we are and has more technical expertise. And in this case, we put a lot of emphasis on what the property manager is. This is the business that they're in. They have other units in the area. They have a lot more data to pull from. So they're also making an operating budget. But where we, so this is a bit of a negotiation, informal negotiation from the get-go where the property manager shows their cards. They have their operating budget. And in a way, this is where we start to negotiate with them, their KPIs and their expectations that they're going to hit. Just like when you guys hire somebody, right? Say, well, what can you do? What's your sales quarter? It's the same thing for us in this instance. So between those two, our, our estimation of operating budget, their estimation of operating budget and less, oh, and also the, the past trailing 12 or 24 months profit and loss statement, we come to a, an amount, we bless it. We say, hey, Mr. Property Manager, this is the expectations to hit. We both agreed upon it. And then, of course, we always add a little bit of contingency. In, and that's that's what we put into the model. And that's what we come out to market to you guys to show. And also the CapEx is done in very similar form. You'll never find, Kyle always laughs about this, but I always joke, let's go take some pictures on ladders, like all those other syndicators. He takes us up. We think it's like the dumbest thing in the world when people take pictures on ladders. Thinking, oh, we're inspecting the roof. I don't know anything about, I know when you need to replace. I know that. 
but I know enough to know that I'm not expert and along the other hundreds of other components of the building. We've sent in third-party professional property inspectors, which are way better than any residential property inspector who always just caveat things that's put into their app that most of it is just all fluff anyway. But the commercial property inspectors are a lot more like numbers driven and they'll give construction scopes to remediate problems and all the deferred maintenance. So we'll use that as our data point, just like an operating budget, we come up with ours and then all the property management also comes up with theirs. From those three data sources, we're pulling together and coming up with the CapEx budget. We've had some lessons learned before on some foundation things and the lessons learned is in some cases we'll get a a more intrusive due diligence survey done. Just we don't do anything with septic tanks, but like when you buy single family homes, you have a septic tank there, you, you may elect to get another inspector to inspect the septic tank, for example. But that's kind of how we, we put it together. And again, with the construction, there usually isn't too much construction in terms of the whole grand scheme of things. And that's why we like this value, light value add to medium value add, but we still we add contingency on top of that because things change and things happen. But the cool thing with our business models, we may dedicate $150,000 to slurry sealing the parking lot. We don't need so a lot of things we don't need to do. I could just seal coat or just, just fix the cracks and call it good and save the money and put it somewhere else. It's a very fluid motion. Of course, we have to let the bank know whenever we make that type of substantial business plan change because they're always our overseer of keeping us in check. And they can be annoying at sometimes, but at the end of the day, they just want to be us to be responsible with the assets, do what we say that we're going to do. I think we're getting up to the couple hour period, but I told my wife I'd go for three hours. So I'm going to go longer if you guys have more questions. If you're invested as a, in the syndication and the sole proprietor and you passed away, how do you pass it on to your kids? Is there a way to transfer it death? So I'm not a lawyer here. And when I'm the sponsor and I, this is why I like to know you guys. I haven't had anybody die on me yet, but then you're damn right. I'm going to figure out who this money goes to and get it to the right person. Also, if I can see what I can do to help out too. So I think, so when you sign on the, on the syndication, on the dotted line, even if you just do it personally, like you should have in the back end, like your will or ideally a trust. So all that you, you, in the trust, you name, I forget the exact terminology, but all assets by this person follows into the instructions of said trust, that type of stuff. So everybody here, especially if you have big kids, you don't want a will, you want a trust, get that all set up. We have a lot of resources for that. Maybe check out the last podcast with Andrew Howe. That was a cool one, but it's just something everybody needs to have. You should cost a thousand, few thousand dollars, but don't chief out on something like this, guys. Or just get it done, too. You can always kind of change it as you move down the road. Question, do you do a GP course or just for LPs? I do not do general partnerships. Up. I think that's still a big scam. All these guys teaching people how to be do syndication deals and buy apartments. First of all, if you don't have rental property experience, don't do it, guys. Silly. <laughs> Uh, sure, you can just raise a gazillion dollars off your friends and families and fools to do it. A lot of these guys, they just want to take your, a lot of these courses and programs. You buy the course, but it leads into the stupid program after that costs like thirty to $50,000 a year. Granted, you have to be able to have somebody on your partnership team to make the deal happen. This is why I do think that 
if you really want to go down this road, just know that you have to be around the deals, number one. Number two, you need the general partner, the loan guarantors to sign on the debt for you. They need to have the net worth to qualify for the debt, number one. And if you're going after Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you already have you need to have somebody with the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac experience. So that's always been an unfortunate chicken and egg thing where it's really hard to crack into this business. And you have to you know, slave away, kiss brokers' butts for two years to hopefully get the deal. And from what I've seen, the success rate of people who pull me up and spend thirty to $50,000 is usually about 5% or less. So to me, I'm just telling you the numbers. It's to me, not a very good return on your time or your capital. Just if you're making more than a hundred grand, just stick out the passive investor route. But I get it. If you don't make any money, I don't know why you're even following my stuff. This might be the best ticket out of poverty, I guess, if you make less $50,000 a year. If somebody was looking to do this stuff, how would they go about doing that? First step one, go buy some rental properties, get some freaking experience doing this stuff. And unfortunately, what I see a lot of times with these gurus or these podcasts just fill people's heads up with stuff. Oh, you can do it. Well, bigger stuff, it's actually a lot easier. You have people, you have money to spend on people, which is true, but not when you want to be taking in other people's money. Yes. That other than what information documents should be asking. So here's the thing. Here's exactly what they're going to tell you for $30,000. Go out, go to um, a place like LoopNet, which is a horrible place to find deals. And LoopNet is known as the graveyard for deals. But you go on there and you go find a broker on there because the reason why the brokers are on LoopNet is because they suck anyway and they don't have a client base. So that's for you as a another bottom feeders. Go to these LoopNet brokers because at least they're willing to talk to you. Other than that, all the good brokers are just going to send you just the garbage, the sucker deals, the 99.99% of deals out there. Only take the one in a thousand deals that kind of come by to the brokers that we already have relationships with that are calling in the street, uh, looking, shaking the tree loose for good deals. You find one of these kind of low-life brokers that are just trolling on LoopNet and you build a relationship with them. You kiss their butt, make them feel good about themselves. And you start to learn the language and you start to sound cool. Yeah, I've got my cat stuck together. Can you please send me the chill and rectals, please? So you can just copy and paste a gazillion times to dozens and dozens of brokers. And then they'll start sending you deals. 99.99% of the time, the deals just are horrible and you're just getting the crap that just fell from, you know, that fell out of contract or just fell through deals because they're not deals. They just don't, don't even make money. A lot of times you need to learn how to underwrite them. That's really not that difficult. And I think that's where a lot of these guru groups will teach people how to do that. And that's what, and I think that's where I got started. I got to analyze a lot of deals. So I really figure out what was like, what was a good deal? What was not a good deal? And that's how I realized 99.99% of deals from these guys are just garbage. But then now you want to give the broker some feedback so they know that it's not some jabroni. Or maybe they want to find that. They want to find people who are just the unsophisticated, seemingly sophisticated investors that kind of come through. On the last deal that we had, we put out to sellers. We have 20 offers. It's funny to go through all the profiles. A lot of them work for, just had a lot of money, just work for tech companies. They didn't know what the heck they were doing. So it's funny to see who steps up as a buyer because uh, there's always a sucker born every day. So then you want to add feedback to the brokers. Start that's what like starts to establish yourself as sophisticated and not just the, oh somebody who just got up and rolled out of bed and did three months of due diligence and research and now putting offers in on 50, 60 unit properties. And then do that, rip wash repeat for two years. And then a lot of times the brokers don't take you seriously unless you visit the property. So that's a big barrier to entry for a lot of people.
how do I shift from LP? So I went and, and did this for freaking years. And in the process, I learned a lot about underwriting deals and figuring out what was a good deal. And then I realized like at the time, I was pretty much a credit investor status. And I, I was like, I think in my late 20s, maybe early 30s. But I was like, if I just invest my money as a passive, but at that time, the returns were a little bit better. You two extra money every five years. I was like, I just did the math. I was like, if I just continue to work at an easy job, I'll save thirty to $50,000 a year, put that into deals, take already what my net worth is, sell off all my single family homes and put it into this stuff and it just grows and compounds at say 13, 14%. Just to use that conservative number, my net worth would be here. I'd be able to quit my day job in my 30s or certainly before my 40s. That was good. That was good with me. And so that's why I was just like, all right, I'm just going to switch and stop wasting my time because at the time I was living in Seattle too, and I wasn't able to go and visit deals every other week, like how you should, if you really want to expect to get the, the deal. Um, because the broker's number one concern is not getting the higher price. They could care less for their client. They want to just close the deal so they can get their commission check. And so does the seller. Seller doesn't really care. They just want to know if they can close. And I can say that from our perspective as sellers too. So a lot of it is, who are these people? What is their track record? Have they closed several million dollar deals in the past. If not, they're off the chopping block, even if they offer a million dollars plus in offering asking price. It's very different than residential home buyers world. But then I realized, wow, I'm just going to be a good passive investor. And so I focused on that for a little bit. And then a lot of you guys asked, Kate, what are you investing in, man? Can I just see your coattails? And that's how the we started a long time ago. And then, then it went some some bad deals and some bad people. And then I started to realize I need to have control of the situation, especially if my friends and family were investing alongside with me. And then I started to learn stuff because you learn, you don't learn things by going through some stupid $30,000, $50,000, especially from the operation point of view. But I started to learn a lot about how the deals work from the inside, from the general partner seat. And then that's where I grew up with a lot of the partners today. A lot of us started at the same time. We grew up together of build a lot of synergies and more personal relationships at the end of the day. And this is what you're seeing in the maturation process that we today, it's how we always keep things more as an inner circle and to do bigger deals. And that's where we're at today. I'm sure things will evolve in the future, like I said, but that is how I make the shift from LP to GP. So all this wouldn't have been possible if I didn't do this silly podcast back in 2016, which people liked apparently. And they just somehow trust me. I honestly don't know. And I'm uh, very appreciative from all you guys that kind of just jump into deals. A lot of, especially the last couple of years, with the whole pandemic, we haven't had to shake hands, meet people in the flesh, their past investors. And for me, when I was a past investor, that was a big thing. I wanted to meet the people who do a lot of events like this. The people would just get together and investing in deals, invest in deals with me. There'll be a lot of those synergies happening. As of late, we've had to kind of shut down a lot of the more pop-up events because people have found about our community and a lot of these like movie syndicators are love to come into this kind of community to kind of culture off unsuspecting passive investors and poses very people with very long track records. So the uh, open house events will be very limited. Everything is pay to play. We want serious people here. I'm not doing that because I just like money. I'll just do that because it, it ups the level of the community that do show up. But it ain't other. that was that. Oh, there's some follow-up on that too. 
Do you have a timetable for getting a rehab or value add properties done? Is it based on vacancy? As I mentioned before, tenants typically they move out in a couple of years on average. Some never move out. Some some are out after the first six months. Maybe a couple breaks off where they have to move out or something like that. But on average, two years, two or three years is when go through most of the rehabs. And which is cool because it's not huge construction scopes or not a big qualities. We still have the commies of skill because we just rinse, wash, repeat every single month do it the next set. But no, there is no, we got a lot of engineers who are investors with us and they like Gantt charts. Gantt charts are like, you know, we're going to do unit 402 with the flooring component and the sink component and then the paint and then we're going to lease it up. We don't have that on a per unit basis and we don't even have it on a unit basis just from a high level. Like we just, it's just not that type of construction project when you have that level of detail. There is variability in this types of business. Sometimes we will rehab 12 units, especially in the summer months on a normal size building, like a couple hundred unit property. Sometimes it just might be one or two, maybe not that one. It just at different varying levels of rehab. A lot of time, well, we've been doing a lot this last year is we've been getting the rent increase we're looking for by just changing out our faucet, doing a partial upgrade. Because again, the, the business plan is just to get people's expect two extra people's money. How we do that or how much money we spend, then we'll just return it right back to investors if we don't spend it. Sometimes you get into a deal and there's a lot of bad tenants or people just happen to move out for some strange reason. They know what's happening. And although that isn't very good for cash flow, it can be good for the project overall, right? We call this ripping off the band aid, getting the people out so we can do a lot of the rehabs, which actually helps us. This actually happened with uh, the first Phoenix property where we had a huge amount, like, I think 20% drop in occupancy right off the bat, and which is fine. We didn't plan to pay out investors the first couple of quarters anyway, but which actually turned out to be good now. We got that big jump start, and a lot of the, the units got turned and upgraded. And actually, probably one of the best things to happen. Again, the goal of the three goals of any project are number one, capital preservation, don't lose money, don't lose the asset. Number two, it's doing the renovations, the business plan. And thirdly, it's cash flow. So sometimes investors, they get might get upset that cash flow wasn't as expected. But I just tell them that's the third on the list. Sometimes you don't hit, the important thing is to hit your number one and number two objectives. Number three is cash flow. Do you work in the same lender, in the same markets? So this, the lenders that we all use are like the brokers that go out to the community banks. Or But if it's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lending, it's all the same large agencies. Uh, Arbor, Small, to name a few. There's only on a handful. And so the, in that respect, it's a lot easier than residential and all like the people doing four units and 60 unit is really confusing because, and the loan terms aren't as good too. It's no man's land because it's the most risk from a lender's perspective. You use the same type of loans, bridge loan. It depends on what the deal calls for. You use long-term Fannie Mae Mac deals on more yield type of deals, but on value add deals, you do a bridge loan. Bridge loans, uh, the good thing is you don't have the prepayment penalties like you do on the long-term Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans. There's a more in-depth conversation about this in the syndication e-course, but essentially bridge loans magnify things. Makes good deals better, bad deals worse. I'll say that again. Makes good deals better, bad deals worse. So you as a fast investor need to realize what's the good deal. I like money makes good people better and stingy people cheaper. On exit, do you do a cash out refinance with 1031? No, we do not. 
because we all think that you guys are grown-ups and you guys can manage your passive activity losses as you should. Stockpiling passive activity losses for the eventual cash outs at the end to be able to pay your capital gain and depreciation recaptures. Bonus depreciation, I don't know how this is a problem to just continually kick the can down the road for a really long time. On some of the smaller deals that are more heavy value add, that are more accessible, they're primarily go out to the family office group only. We are starting some of these rollouts where it is meant to be a more new roll 1031 or cash out report 1031 into the next asset to keep it rolling and rolling and rolling more of some legacy deal. I guess I forget what the word for that is, but yeah, just keep rolling and rolling and rolling. Like a, a baseball team that kind of grows up with each other in a way. Which is why we take the VIPs, the family office people, because it's the people that kind of trust us. We don't have to explain everything to them. And it's, they're a little bit more like risking your deals, but I think a lot more return because of the, the heavier value add, less cash flow. And you talked about preps. So the way I like to see things is when I'm a passive investor, it's very transparent, straight split. Some people like to see more pref in the beginning, paid to investors. For, but general partners, I'm not saying this for us, but general partners are always the smartest people in the world. They're the one creating the split scheme. When they're giving you the pref in the beginning, you can bet your butt that they're taking it at the upside when the deal gets knocked out of the party. But I'm a passive investor. I just want it to be straight. Split. So when I get, when the investment just absolutely skyrockets, I want equal as much of the upside. But the, depends how you are an investor. If you'd rather have a, a most now and give up your upside down the road, then that's just up to you. Okay. We're getting into some of the tax stuff here. So maybe I'll explain the two questions here. So we're going to always change the spelling. People are like, you mean you can't spell right or use grammar? How can you manage apartment buildings? Can you explain how depreciation recapture works in syndication deals? Okay, so when you, let's just say everything goes really well and you put in $100,000 and in X amount of years, you doubled your money, you got some cash flow and you got your payout at the end and you've got $100,000 of capital gain. You've got to pay taxes on that capital gain, yes. And you will also have to pay back your depreciation that you've got. So you guys have heard all this stuff about bonus depreciation. I mean, it, it ranges. And every deal is a little bit different. But let's do for this example, if an investor put in $100,000, let's just say they got $50,000 of first year losses. So a minus loss of 50. And what they do is they take that, spend that passive loss and they can either use it to offset their other passive income or if they're implementing real estate professional status, rep status, uh, which there's a, there's some hoops that jump through for that, they can use that to offset the ordinary income. Now, what that really cool is for like doctors, for example, that might make $600,000 if they're implementing real estate professional status and they have several hundred thousand dollars of passive activity losses, maybe they can take $200,000 and lower their $600,000 down to four hundred, effectively saving them 100 Gs right there from taxes at 50 cents on every dollar. Those are getting into the tax uh, strategies that we help people out in the family office. Or if you just simply want to do it on your own, find your own accountant. But then I say, you're the one who has to learn this type of stuff to empower yourself. If not, your CPAs may or may not do it. Likely they're not going to do this stuff for you if you don't ask. They know exactly what to ask for. So you're going to, in this deal again, you put in a hundred grand, you got a $50,000 loss your first year, and then the deal cashes out. Now that $50,000 loss, you've got to rebook that. And this is called depreciation recapture. And you're gonna, and so in addition to that hundred thousand dollar gain, you're gonna add a fifty thousand dollar taxable 
event onto that. So you're, th- you're looking at adding $150,000 of income to your taxes. Now you'd have to pay that unless you maybe you went into a whole bunch of deals like you probably should be and you're stockpiling a lot of passive activity losses and you just take $150,000 and you extinguish that. If you did this all in the, in the same year, it's all a kind of a point that you went into another deal and you've got maybe even more passive activity losses that you began with. And this is where if you're looking at it on a myopic basis, yeah, you got to pay $150,000 appreciation recapture and capital gain at the exit. But what you should be doing is going to many deals, building a reservoir of passive activity losses to dip in and out of, and then creating that space for you to go and place that $100,000 gain into two deals. And then you get $100,000 of uh, depreciation, at least in that case, and that offsets that gain right there. And this is how you continue to kick these cans continually down the road. Again, I'm not a CPA lawyer. You can check out the syndication or the tax guide at simplepasscashflow.com slash tax. But not getting any tax or legal advice out there. You guys be silly to do that. But it just it's not your personal situation and I'm not a CPA lawyer. But uh, a lot of our clients do this to help people learn about this type of stuff. So a cost segregation study helps to get that big first year loss that we mentioned. Tax to, taxpayer to take advantage of current bonus depreciation laws in order to depreciate their assets by taking a loss of paper. If the current bonus depreciation law starts to phase out slowly in 2022, how will this affect LP investors on syndication deals? Trying to find. So what I'm looking for is the chart IRS website. Okay, bummer. It's hard to find and I'm not finding it, but it, here's how it works, folks. This is the simple passive cash flow version. Really makes sense these days, especially IRS stuff. But in the year 2022, you still get 100% of the bonus depreciations, extra, more aggressive losses that pushes out a whole bunch in the first year. And every year after that, it steps down of 20%. So 2023, you're still going to have 80%. 2024, you're going to have 60%. In my opinion, you get 60%, 40%. That's still pretty damn good. Most of you guys are not doing real estate professional status. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I think a lot of you guys hear about all this stuff about, I want depreciation. You're like, yeah, I want that. It may not make sense for you. Again, if you're not doing real estate professional status on your taxes, you're not doing the 2,000 hour, 750 hour rule thing. Unless maybe you're selling off all of these single family homes, right? Like when I, in 2017, I sold eight single family homes off. I had a $250,000 depreciation recapture and capital gain there. But because I had all this passive losses, I just offset once for once. A great example of how this works in a while. The, I still think whether you put in a hundred grand, you're getting still maybe fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 back. I mean, if you cut that 20% down every year from 2022, 2023 on, I still think you're still getting a pretty dang good paper loss. Even with regular depreciation, you're probably going to offset the gains from the first couple of years of the investment anyway. And I think maybe the strategy is to go into deals 2022, 2023 to maximize how much you're getting. And then just like a squirrel, keeping a bunch of nuts in the tree and you just go out and get a bunch. And that's what I kind of do. That's why a lot of times I'll invest in the press equity to get a bunch of passive activity losses. Because again, I've got that quarters mentality, right? The scarcity mentality where I just want a whole bunch of nuts or in this case, passive activity losses to keep on my 82, 84 form. I might be mistaken, but I think that's the form that is all stored on your taxes. But that's how I would be playing it. I think that they'll probably come here 2020, 
2024, 2026, I'm sure something else will happen while they'll extend it or something like that. The the thing I like about this is most people don't know about this stuff, so it's really obscure. Therefore, you know, it doesn't being brought to the public light and therefore they won't take it away. Like how they, 1031 is always on the chopping block or Peter Thiel's of the world screw up the IRAs and that's becoming a debacle. Who knows? It just be a rumor now or just hearsay, but I think the IRAs, self-directed IRAs are going by the wayside in terms of its utility, which is why I always said don't do it. So you have a higher than $330,000 adjusted gross income, or you have more than half a million dollars in your retirement accounts already. Did you guys have any more follow-up on tax questions? Let's just throw it there. Oh, Bob says, shout out to Camilla for always being responsible. So those of you guys don't know, Camilla is my executive assistant. She's learning. Sometimes you guys ask her really stuffer questions and I just tell her, hey, don't worry about it. Like, just tell them you'll get back to me. And I, we interface at least every other day. So she'll always have a list of questions that I can uh, reach out to her with. She always stresses out. I don't know what they're asking and I don't want to make you look dumb or I don't want to look dumb. She's pretty friendly. Be nice to her. Oh, follow-up question. Does the Passive activity losses, Powell's for sure, also work on the state level. See, I don't know that. I think that's a question for your CPA. But like my understanding is if you're paying less federal than less goes into the state. So in a way, yes. Last year, I drove my adjusted gross income down to 25000 And you guys can go to my tax forms on that simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. I'm pretty sure I didn't pay any Hawaii tax because my AGI was so low. I think. When you do this stuff right on your federal, it should trickle down to your, a lot of you guys are in California too, but I'm not incredibly sure on that. But I think that's, again, everybody should be like me, right? Jokingly say that, but you, know, you need to know enough how this stuff works so that you can command and control your CPA to do what? Well, when you start to get into the weeds, like this type of stuff, I think that's where you need to start to pull back the reins and start to realize what is like your job here. Your highest and best use is making money at your day job so you can invest some more or maybe stop worrying about this stuff and worry about maybe you have half a million dollars in your home equity. Do get that stuff working. Not saying that's the case here, Mark, but for other people, like some people fixate on the wrong things, right? Like infinite banking is a good example. We, you guys want that access to that free e-course for infinite banking, I think just go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking. It's really cool. I think everybody over a million dollars network should be doing it to some extent. I put in a boatload every single year doing that stuff, but it doesn't really move the needle like the tax and the investments do. So we always like when people come into the fat office screen, it's always a time, right? We'll figure out what deals you want to invest first. And more importantly, what's a good deal? So you invest with some shyster that steals all your money and you lose it all. And then focus on your taxes. This is especially true for the high income. And then lastly, after the six-month period, then focusing on infinite bank. But more times when you're just float there all on your own, you're just doing things haphazardly because you've heard it on a podcast, you're doing it all, it's, you're getting shiny objects and junk. You're doing things always out of the order. Moving on. Have there been any issues with property management companies you select going to accommodate taking on new properties? We've had property management companies that we fired. We've gone through at least two that they just weren't working out. We've had maybe half a dozen at least individual property managers that aren't at the front desk that we've had to remove because they just weren't good. One of, all, one of them was on a property that 
that we took over the property when it was, when we, when we went to contract, it was stabilized, so 85%, 90% plus occupied. But the closing took a long time. It took like four months to close the deal. And the seller was a jerk and kind of let the property go. So when we took over the, the property, it was like 60% occupied, which isn't the greatest thing. But again, sometimes it's good to get the riffraff out and that's when it naturally happened for us. So we could just get in there and rip to the units. But the property, we, so that was an issue. Then the, the next issue was like the property manager weren't the greatest. We don't work with these guys anymore. But first the property, the individual person, property manager wasn't the greatest. We changed them out. And then the property management company employs the person. We found something better, so we replaced them eventually too. So it happens. It's actually happening on one of our properties now, Silverstone. We had to remove the person. We never removed the property management company. We still have a great relationship with them, but the person wasn't a good fit. And that's just personal issues. Was that all kind of the questions you had or follow up some more? Catherine, this one is always confuses everybody. And I think if you're somebody who gets confused with a lot of stuff, pay no attention to this question. So some people, some syndicators, what they will do is they will confuse return of investment with return on investment and vice versa. So the way we do things and we kind of show performance, like we don't say you've got a hundred, say you invested a hundred thousand dollars. And at the end of the five years, I gave you a hundred thousand dollars back of your own original money. Some people will call that a hundred percent return of money or capital of investment, whatever. No, to me, you just gave me my freaking money back. And that's a 0% gain. The gain would be on top of that, $100,000. So it's like, you gave me my original principal back plus 100 grand, that would be a 100% return on my investment. Return on investment, just to let's say that a little bit better. Or a 2x equity multiplier, as you double your money. So sometimes you got to be tricky. Sometimes you guys like on performance will call it 200%. And you're kind of like, and that's, of invest. So it's weird. So there's something to be aware of, which makes things, it's annoying, right? Everybody's got to show things differently and play these stupid games, stuff like that. Same thing. Some people, they'll include the tax benefits. Like you might get a bunch of depreciation the first year and they may equate that to gain. You can't do that in my opinion. Like you can do whatever you want, but like on a performer, it's irregardless of the tax benefits that you got so yeah, like you got like a $50,000 loss the first year. Like, yeah, if you were in the tax tax bracket, that'd be $25,000 to your bottom line. But you don't put that as return of or on investment. You just don't do that stuff. Where the stuff gets a little bit more tricky to it and it becomes more into the tax realm is if it's of investment, now you can get tricky with this and you can call it, some people call it like, we're just returning your money, then you don't have to pay taxes on it because it's we're just returning your money. Just the refinance would be. If the CPAs, whenever I ask them this question, they're like, oh, you stupid, these stupid syndicators are just trying to do funny stuff. No, it's simple. If the money made, if the investment made money, y'all have to pay taxes on that. It doesn't matter if it's some tricky return of investment or on investment, doesn't matter. If the freaking investment made money, then it is taxable, right? So let's, I guess here's how it is. So maybe we get into a deal and the investment made $100,000. There's 10 investors. Each investor made $10,000. Now, it doesn't matter if the syndicator gets really cute, cuddly and tricky and says, that's just, we're just returning your money back to you. So it's not a taxable bet. CPA will just say, yes, that it's, you guys made, $100,000 of investment. Each investor made 110 grand. 
that is taxable. That is a capital gain. No tricks, no games. Of course, like we try to refinance money out. So it is a true return of investment, right? In a refinance example like that. But the way it works is like your K-1 is your, your certain percentage of the deal. And if the deal makes money, you pay taxes on that. So this is where like the term phantom income comes in, where let's just say the investment made, the same case, made $100,000 a year. Each of the 10 investors share was $10,000 of income that'll be taxed on every year. But let's just say that general partner elected to pay off half of that to investors as distributions and decided that it was in the best interest of the partnership to take $50,000 or $5,000 from each of the 10 investors to go build a dog park or whatever, or to put it into cash reserves because they heard this pandemic was happening and they just thought it was true. So that would be called like phantom income. So the partnership made the money and yes, they have to pay taxes on it. And therefore all the individual investors have to pay taxes on it. But it's not like the distribution came to the investors. So there's not always a case where if an investor made a hundred grand, has investors share the hundred grand. Some might go to cash reserves or to a more CapEx budget that wasn't previously planned in the business plan. So that's what the whole phantom income thing is about. I think we're getting up to the end here. Unless you guys have any more questions. Thanks, Lisa, for that comment. Yeah, I can now analyze deals, understand all the language, like our cap rates. Yeah, this stuff isn't that difficult, right? It's just the problem is nobody teaches this stuff. And it is like when I first started to look at these types of deals, I was really dumbfounded. And I thought a lot of this was pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes, but it's really not that difficult. To answer Sherman's question here, how long do you think you're doing some negations? What's the end game? I don't know, man. I'm just going to keep picking up cash flow properties, I think, until I get really tired of doing this. But I'm sure I'll be doing this for the next 10 years or so. But that said, you could die. <laughs> Never know. That's why I got a lot, of, a lot of life insurance. Nothing is forever. And that's why it's important to build relationships. With other passive investors actually doing this stuff too. Thanks to yourself. I'm sure we'll turn into an institution one of these days, but we're just not there yet. I guess I'll share this little chart here with you guys quick. So if you guys are new to the, the group, you guys start here, you get educated, you join the club. You, if you guys haven't yet uh, booked the onboarding call after you sign up with this link, simplepassivecapsule.com slash club. I think a lot of you guys are currently already gone through this process or already investors with us, but this is how you guys are referring friends over. This would be how I push into the process. Do the various e-courses. The, the infinite banking one is free. The remote investor e-course syndication one is for purchase. However, if you guys refer people, we do give that complimentary. And then it depends like where you're at, right? If, if you're under a quarter million dollars net worth, I would suggest go buy a rental property. But if you're a credit investor, what I would do is go out and no better way is learn by doing. Get educated, build a network around you. If you're over a million, two million dollars network, I think you should probably just jump into the family office group and stop screwing around trying to do it all on your own. Your network is your net worth, as we say. Simple passive cash flow, our tribe, we has closed up. There is no really free opportunities to network anymore. Unless you guys have any other questions, let me know what you guys thought of this. We'll try and do one in the future. But I think it's also good to just catch everything up. But hopefully all the questions were useful to everybody. Somebody asked something that somebody else answered.
But back to Sherman's question, I, to me, it's just a lot of fun. A lot of you guys are great folks, just like myself, a lot of hardworking professionals. It's fun to grow your networks together. There are some rotten eggs out there that I strictly remove. But if, if you ever come to our events and you meet someone who's not quite that cool, let me know. I'll remove them. And just like how you guys can be as discriminatory as possible with your money too. This is an equal opportunity investment program here. Maybe I should watch what I say. Who knows? People get offended with everything you can can't do anything they want but no we invest with people that we know and trust and that includes our community too going back to craig's question here put that in so everybody can as a follow-up to the phantom income question the lps would obviously have to pay taxes and whether it was paid out to them with the business syndication pay the taxes on their behalf of the 50 percent of profits with the lp responsible so the so in that case the $10,000 was your book share, even though you only got maybe $5,000 of distributions. So yes, you would have to pay taxes on that $10,000. But luckily, as you guys know, real estate, the passive losses, especially from the first year, more than offset a lot of the cash flow gains anyway for the first several years anyway. Or you should probably have a bunch of tax stock, a stockpile passive to be losses from other deals regardless. So should be a moot point. Uh, and this is why, if you guys notice what's happening here, you guys are moving away from ordinary income, right? Things like your day job, private money lending deals with ordinary income, notes, get away from that type of stuff and get into more passive income or where the color of money is this nicer color where you can use the passive losses to offset it and extinguish it. But if you're investing in syndication deal, you're getting these passive losses and you're stockpiling and doing it. A lot of this stuff is going to be swept under the rug it's not going to really matter anymore i mean like people in the family office group if you go look at the testimonials they just put up some because taxes were due this week it's really due october 15th folks not due april that's when most people play it you don't want to be like most people people are lowering their effective tax rates from the mid-20s down to the teens you start to play this type of stuff that that's where the big gains come from and i think that's where investors they who don't get it on the lower rungs under a quarter million half million dollars network they're so involved in investing right for strategy this or that where when you become more of an accredited investor the game switches to more taxes infinite banking and yeah you're still investing but it's as you ascend the mountain things become more impactful than the investing that got you to your first place if you're still out there flipping houses or growing properties you lose sight of the big game that's being played here and then as therefore as you start to step up to these bigger deals where there's better tax benefits little five thousand dollars on book income that you absorbed on taxes but you didn't get in profits that's when it is this stuff doesn't matter this is just a nuance for the most part i wouldn't worry too much about this type of stuff but it's good to understand how things kind of work. At the end, it's all kind of a wash, but way better off. But with that, I don't have my next call for another 15 minutes. Anybody wants to drop the last question? This is the time to do it. But if not, thank you all for joining us. Please share with your friends. And any feedback is welcome. We're always trying to improve. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. 
Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.